Time again for another Word Balloon podcast, the comic book conversation show. John Suntras here. Hope you're doing well. Man, we are knee deep into Comic-Con season. And uh, we talked to uh, a couple people that have been at some recent shows and uh, also kind of explore uh, some of the uh, infighting that's going on in the fan community. It's kind of crazy. Um, that's going to happen a little bit later in the in the conversation. First up, though, we've got Mark Bernardin coming on. Uh, you know Mark from uh, his excellent work back in the day at Wildstorm uh, for books like The Highwaymen. Also, a great uh, Top Cow series that won pilot season a while back, Genius, which came out last year. The Trade for Genius is coming out uh, in June, and I'm happy to get Mark on. Mark is also a deputy editor at Playboy.com and a podcaster. He is uh, podcasting with Kevin Smith on Fat Man on Batman, doing commentaries for uh, the Gotham TV show and all the Batman movies. Mark uh, is one of the hosts of the Nerdist Writers Comics panel, so uh, it's good to have Mark on. Get his perspective of the market. He's uh, written for uh, The Hollywood Reporter and Entertainment Weekly, along with his duties at Playboy.com. And Playboy.com is at an interesting point, too. Uh, the site is just over 20 years old and uh, has really gone from being uh, what it always was in the magazines as well, a porn site, but uh, something that sometimes people forget when they're focusing on the nudity, and it's tough to take your eyes away. I can appreciate that. Playboy has also been about uh, lifestyle, music, sports, a lot of the interests of young men, much in the way that Details and Maxim kind of uh, picked up on that. Playboy.com in the last year or so has gone back to its roots, emphasizing the lifestyle stuff that they were always known for. A great literary site as well. And we talk about that. God, Playboy has the pedigree, uh, much like a Sports Illustrated, in terms of some of the classic writers that have uh, gone through Playboy and uh, put their stuff in either serialized form or as short stories in Playboy. Guys like Ian Fleming and Arthur C. Clarke and uh, so many other wonderful authors in addition to the Playboy interview being conducted back in the day by guys like Alex Haley and currently by guys like Will Wheaton talking to Patton Oswalt. Really interesting conversation in January. So it's great to get Mark's perspective of working at Playboy today, what Playboy represents and also talking about his comic book work and uh, the nerd market as well. That's all happening in part one of Word Balloon. I love that conversation. I also love our follow-up conversation with uh, Rob Salkowitz. It's wonderful to welcome Rob back to the show. Uh, Rob is uh, the wonderful uh, market analyst for uh, himself and uh, ICV2. But uh, Rob's been at a few shows recently, shows like uh, Emerald City Comic Con. And uh, we talk about the Hugo Awards to start things off because, as I said, there's been some fan infighting going on. And uh, we get into that and uh, worry about some of the, uh, the the nastiness that's going on lately in uh, in, in the tone of uh, social media. And uh, that's a shame because, really, uh, we should all be celebrating this time as far as nerd fandom uh, with uh, the amount of uh, media, the great shows and movies. Uh, the Daredevil uh, Netflix show just debuted this weekend, and uh, so many other great things, obviously, in movies and television. Uh, everybody sh should be taking a victory lap and not pointing fingers and angry at each other. And Rob and I talk about that and more in part two of today's Word Balloon. I hope you stick around for it and enjoy it. it also, it's all brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you, as always, for your wonderful support uh, through Patreon.com. 
if you go to patreon.com slash word balloon, uh, there is a page there that uh, is me asking uh, to uh, help the cause if you believe in the cause. Word Balloon is a free podcast. It will always be free. And I stress that every time I talk about this. But if you want to help, that would be great and could afford even a dollar a month. Go to wordballoon.com. There's a Patreon tab there. Or go to patreon.com slash wordballoon directly to the page. And um, if you if you can spare it, that's fantastic. And thank you for your support. As I always tell you, the best way to help me out at Word Balloon is let your friends know that you like the show. And if they're not listening, they should. Word Balloon is also brought to you by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com. They're part of Discount Comic Book Service, and uh, they sell trades at great prices you won't believe. And I'll tell you about a few of them so you don't have to believe. You'll hear the facts for yourself. You'll get things like the uh, Star Wars Legends Epic Collection from Marvel. It's just $20.29. How about Mark Miller and Frank Quitely's Jupiter's Legacy? What a great uh, story so far. Volume 1 is out now in paperback. 50% off, just $4.99. Walter Simonson's Orion is being collected. An omnibus hardcover is available. 50% off, $37.50. You can get from Kelly Sue DeConnick, Captain Marvel, the trade paperback, Volume 2, Stay Fly. It's uh, Kelly Sue and David Lopez. It's 42% off, just $9.27. From Ed Brisson, you can get Sheltered. Trade paperback, Volume 3, is available now. 42% off, $8.69. And lots more. For all the details, check out all the books you're looking for. You'll find them at prices you won't believe at InStockTrades.com. All right, let's get things started with Mark Bernardin. Uh, a long time coming talking to this guy, as uh, you'll tell. I, I met him briefly in uh, 2006 and loved his series, The Highwaymen, and uh, was uh, such a fan. And was like, oh, you know, I'm going to have to talk to that guy at some point. Well, it's taken nine years, but we're finally here. So happy to welcome Mark Bernardin to Word Balloon. Mark Bernardin, welcome to Word Balloon. You know, I don't, uh, I, I don't expect you to remember this, but we met back in 2006 at my first San Diego Comic Con, and I, we just, you know, typically like, you know, walking through the aisles and stuff, and I saw you, and I said, "Hey, Mark Bernardin, I just want you to know, I really enjoyed the Highwaymen." And uh-huh. you, <laughs> yeah, and you, were, it was great because you were, you were just that that same kind of reaction of like, "Oh, cool, <laughs> thank you." So yeah, I mean, I. If it was 2006, The Highwayman was probably just out. And, you know, given that, that when you're looking at sales numbers for stuff, you have no idea how deep a thing ever penetrates. Sure. You know, like I, I bet Fraction knows how deep a thing penetrates because people show up like dressed as him. But, you know, if, <laughs> if you're selling like 9,000 copies of a book from Wildstorm and that's like not bad, I guess. But that's 9,000 people out of 300 million. So you have no idea who's actually reading it. So Absolutely. Be like, hey, I liked your book. Oh, it's so sweet. Thank you. <laughs> no, man, it was cool. And I, you know, uh, well, and I was, I, I still am, and it's uh, now it's, of course, not uh, fashionable to say so, certainly uh, given the controversy surrounding one of the co-stars, but I was a huge I Spy fan and, and, ah. and saw the nod to, or at least I saw a nod to I Spy in your presentation of The Highwayman. I don't know if, if you guys, uh, you and Aaron, uh, or Adam rather, had that, that same feeling when you were making it. Yeah, I mean, basically it was everything from I Spy to Stir Crazy to Lethal Weapon to, like, the Defiant Ones. Basically, any time you had a black dude and a white dude together, (laughs) we have sort of seen it all. Like, there's a little bit of Blazing Saddles in there just because. But, yeah, I mean, the... The the sort of the the wry humor and the sort of occasional but not at all. I mean, it was more overt in I Spy simply because of the time it had to be set in. But, you know, the idea of playing racial politics for 
you know, both dramatic effect and a little bit of humor um, was something we kind of definitely wanted to try and shoehorn in there. That's cool. Well, you know, and for me, it was just a good action adventure comic that had no capes. And, you know, uh, coming back to comics in 1999 and, you know, never leaving again, um, I really appreciated action adventure with plainclothes people and really love crime stuff, things that Brubaker does and, and Fraction as well and some of the others, Rucka. Um, but, yeah, I, I was just always enjoying that kind of uh, art and, and comics. Who was your artist for that uh, that story? Uh, a guy named Lee Garbett. Who uh, or Garbet? I, I never know if it's if it's more the English or the French, but he's a UK artist who had done a little bit of Judge Dredd stuff before then, and a couple of things here and there, and now is just doing like Loki, Agent of Asgard for Marvel, and had done oh some, sure some Batman stuff with Grant Morrison. Like he kind of blew up. Like basically every artist that we've ever worked with before blows up after they do a book with us and then never calls us again. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. Your Greg Smallwood, uh, Smallwood is doing is uh, certainly starting to have his career happen. And uh, oh God damn it! Now and now I'm blanking. Shame on me. Jainitz, uh, uh, Jainitz, uh, you know, found him for a mm-hmm. Dark Horse book, uh, Dream Thief, and he's like even said it as it was out. He's like, man, people are going to see this, and I am going to lose him. And sure enough, you know, <laughs> Greg's oh, off doing a bunch like- of things for Marvel, and Jai's looking for the next guy. You know. There's a book that that I almost did at Wildstorm, like got really close to doing it. And by close to doing it, I mean I like I wrote five scripts, and the artist did three issues, and then Wildstorm went away. Yeah, and it, it's still sort of floundering in in and out of DC in various forms and shapes. And I still have fond hopes that it'll be resuscitated. But I found this artist who I thought was amazing, and she was terrific, and. And I knew, I knew the minute it's like, man, you know, somebody's gonna hire Andy Wu to do something awesome, oh. and. And so, like, I've got four issues of a completed Annie Wu comic book on my hard drive that it kills me that nobody at this point wants to publish. And I'm like, she's so awesome. And she was awesome then. And she's even gotten better now. And I knew I knew it then. Like, she's never going to call me again. (laughs) (laughs) Because somebody's going to see this and then it's just going to happen where it's like, oh, how about Hawkeye? How about Batgirl? How about everything you could ever want? And not that guy. Ah, well. Well, there's there was a lot of experimentation going on in the late 90s and, and early 2000s. And I know that a lot of uh, creators have gotten those properties uh, back from the big two after they've had their runs. And I, I know this to be the case with a book like Bloodhound. Dan Jolly got it back and was able to uh, uh, represent it at Dark Horse and do new stories. Is that possible for you and Adam with Highwaymen and, and some of these other Wildstorm projects? Well, Highwaymen, like the the deal we made, every every deal, every comic book deal we went into was always like, it's the best deal at the time. Like right now, it's you know when we pitched Highwaymen to to Wildstorm, they're like, we love it, let's do it. We're gonna own this outright. You know, like it's not creator owned. It's it's basically work for hire. Sure. And we knew it going in, and we absolutely understood the ramifications of it. Like we're not you know, upset or offended or disappointed by it. Like they did what a company does and that's fine. Um, but you know, every now and again, we're just looking, it's like, Hey, Liam Neeson's doing another movie. We like a 65 year old dude killing lots of people. You know, it would be awesome. <laughs> like, Hey, Denzel Washington's doing another movie where he's like, 80 years old and killing a bunch of people. You know, it'd be great. Put those two guys together, <laughs> you know, and every now and again, some producer will come circling around being like, Hey, so highwaymen, like, do you guys still have the rights to that? It's like, we never had the rights to that, buddy. Like, sorry, uh, you just need to call Warner Brothers. 
And and you know you know yeah. So unfortunately, you don't hear anything beyond that after that. Okay. Yeah, like after after that, it's sort of out of our uh, out of our uh, sphere of influence. Understood. It goes off into some other internecine conversation with people who get paid more than I do and have better shoes than I wear. I understand. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, and I know you. I, I want to get into what you're doing at Playboy.com as well. Um, beca- but you've got a trade coming out. So before we get to that, um, Genius, which one Top Cow's pilot season. Was it uh, 2013's pilot season? What year of uh, pilot season did you win? Dude, that was 2009. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And I know this because we were, uh, when, when we finally came back and, and finished out the run uh, last summer, we had issues of that first pilot season boat. People would bring it in to sign or like Top Cow had a bunch lying around. And the back cover is an ad for the theatrical release of Wanted. Oh, crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Man. So that's how I know that like five years had passed between that first issue and the second issue. Well, I'm glad you were able to finish it. Well, and, you know, I know Top Cow went through a bit of restructuring. I just had Matt Hawkins on the show, and uh, we were talking about that, in fact. And um, I'm glad that it, it did finally come out in the fall of last year and that the trade is uh, out in June. Yeah. I mean, it was – it. it everything that could have gone wrong with that book kind of went wrong with that book. Ultimately, all for the right reasons. You know, like, you know, both Adam and I got incredibly busy where Adam is a reality TV producer and he had like 18 projects happening at the same time. And I was writing on Alphas for a chunk Mm -hmm. and, you know, then back into journalism and Hollywood Reporter and X number of things. Yeah. Our artist, who is amazing, Afua Richardson, um, who's fantastic and wonderful and is a really, like, amazing person who had the worst run of bad luck of anybody I'd ever run into. Everything from, like, break-ins to computer meltdowns to, you know, medical issues and soup to nuts. And so it was a frustrating period to be like, hey, we, we have this book. We'd love to keep going. And then everything would go wrong for six months. And then we'd be back on track. And then everything would go wrong again. All of which led us to like last July when we finally had everything in house and we finally had all the art done and the lettering was finished. And so, all right, we'll put it out. We'll do it weekly. We'll do it in August. We'll just see what happens. And then Ferguson explodes. Yeah. And so you've got like we had this book that had images that looked ripped from the headlines. Yeah. The fact that we started this book, you know, five years previous. But, you know, the timing, the universe could not have aligned, unfortunately, better for us than this book. You know, like to put it out weekly, to put it out last August when the world is on fire and there's SWAT on the streets and and black kids are getting shot by cops. And for us to have a book about SWAT on the streets and black kids getting shot by cops and then shooting back at cops was the weirdest, like, sense of kismet of, of fate that I'd ever encountered. Holy shit, man. You know, where the hell was I? Because, um, like, did CBR and Newsarama, did they pick up on how relevant it was while this shit was going down? It was bizarre. Like, Bleeding Cool was talking about it. AV Club was talking about it. Excellent. You know, CBR, like, the, the, the comics press had started to pick up on it. Wired is talking about it. Like, it was this really odd confluence of and it also happened to be like in that post San Diego like all of the news that was going to happen came out in San Diego so August is a bit of a dead time for comics right so for there to suddenly be like not just a news story but a news story news story sure you know both like played into our hands and made it the weirdest sort of press initiative to ever have to wage which is 
how do you capitalize on tragedy while still trying to sell a book and not capitalize on tragedy? You know? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It was it was bizarre and uncomfortable at times and, you know, cowing and awing and all of that stuff. But, you know, the book came out. It did pretty well. We're doing a sequel. The trade's coming out. Like, all of the above is good stuff, but I wish that it came not at the expense of yeah. human life. <laughs> no, absolutely. No, I can appreciate that. Absolutely, man. And it's it, – yeah, that is unfortunate. But also by the same token, man, it just kind of uh, underlines too – what Top Cow kind of is doing, because I think a lot of Hawking stuff taps into just, you know, all the military stuff that's going on. And, and I mean, he's such a fan of all that stuff and I think, you know, presents it well. And again, it's action adventure. Um, and that's a broad a stroke to, to you know, count genius along those lines, too. But, you know, it's just it is, you know, and, and also just dealing with the world today, the real world that's that's going on. And I, and I think that's an area that certainly comics can thrive and, and storytell in just as movies and TV do. And it's surprising that as creators and publishers try to find original angles and stuff, don't go more to, you know, this kind of real thing could happen and obviously, unfortunately, did. Yeah. I mean, the the, the place that the zone that Adam and I feel like is our sweet spot is the sort of real world pushed a little bit, you know, it's like, I've, I've never like, cause I like world building. Like that's the thing that I, that I kind of get off on when I'm writing something. It's like, I like building a world, I like populating that world. I like inventing the rules for that world. And something like genius, like the world is our world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even if it, it feels, especially when we were pitching it around in 2007 at the time, 2008, like, and nobody bought it because they couldn't understand it. Like, really? Like, come on, really? It's like, yeah, no, this happens, I swear. <laughs> like, the, the, the rebellion is the bit that's fiction, but the event that catalyzes the rebellion is absolutely fact. And so, like, be it the Highwaymen, which is a sort of near future or, you know, this or mm -hmm. Monster Attack Network, like, everything is, it's the real world, but it's got this other thing, like giant monsters. Understood. Well, you know, also, uh, Brian Wood, DMZ, an ex yeah. you know, an extreme result of very realistic and believable circumstances and stuff. And that's, you know, kind of the, the, the world that Genius is playing in as well. So. That's great, man. Well, and uh, I'm glad to hear that uh, a second series is uh, coming out of it as well. So the tra yeah. the trade comes out in June. When when does the second series start? Um, we're writing it now. We're writing it as fast as we humanly can. Um, if I given <laughs> given the delay we had with the previous incarnation, I would like to say that it would be out by like the end of the year, by Thanksgiving and Christmas. But I would not absolutely hold, expect anybody to hold me to that. Um, but that's the plan. Like the plan okay. is to like bank it, get it written. Like we're starting to talk to illustrators and artists about it. Um, and we would love to have something to show by San Diego and then something to roll out by, you know, October, November, December um, in the best of all possible worlds. That's the plan. Okay. Well, you know, and, I, and obviously uh, I like this current rhythm that I think a lot of creator-owned books are doing where – you know, let's let's put together an arc, let's put out a trade, have a break, then go back to the monthlies and everything. And it, and it gives people a chance to kind of get familiar. And then also, you know, when you come back with volume two, stores can also order the first trade and everything. And in fact, mm -hmm. Hawkins even kind of explained to me because I felt that a lot of ideas and I think and I'm, I'm interested in your opinion, both as a writer and as a 
uh, a critic or um, a journalist that that covers uh, what's going on in the geek culture too. Some of these um, long-term ideas, the things that we saw happening in the 90s and early 2000s, the Vertigo books that made it to 70 to 100 issues, I don't know if that model is feasible anymore. And it's a question of what makes more sense doing a finite story. And in, in what I suggested to, to Matt Hawkins was, you know, hey, if you got a good, you know, five-issue story, fine. Wrap it up. Move on to the next goddamn thing. I mean, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But he pointed out incorrectly, too, that, yeah, but the thing is, like, every time he goes back to Think Tank, all the previous trades tick up. And, you know, mm-hmm. the stores order the previous volumes when he starts a new arc and stuff. So there really is that middle ground of you want there to be closure, but by the same token, you want there to be more than, you know, one trade out there because it'll it'll help you. It, you know, it might sell more books and, you know, give people obviously a richer story. But I still, like I said, I wonder if 24 to 36 issues might be the end point these days and the patience level of the audience to to invest in a in a creator owned book like that. Yeah, I mean I I I sort of remember this phrase that Warren Ellis used to toss around called slab of culture. It was like, you know, you you do want this sense that the thing you pick up is a thing in and of itself. Um, even if there was something that came before it or something that comes after it, that you should be able to get a complete experience with the thing that is in your hands. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I sort of like that, like a series of miniseries that are interconnected, but sort of self-contained, mm-hmm. you know, a little bit the way like British TV works. It's like, we're not going to do 22 every year. We're going to do eight. Yeah. And these eight will be awesome. And we'll come back in 18 months and do another eight. And you'll love it because you love the first one and you'll come back for another one. And <laughs> You know, it's the, like the Sopranos model that, that kind of broke TV as we know it, which is we'll come back when we're ready to come back and it'll be good and you'll like it and it, we're giving you all the sauce that you want and, you know, there's no real argument to be had if it's great, you know, and I, and I sort of like that. I like the, like, we'll tell six issues, we'll take a break, we'll tell another six issues, take a break, we'll tell another six issues, take a break, and if we end after 24, then we end after 24. If we end after whatever's next because it's math, then... You know, and math, I don't do so good. Um, you know, 30, awesome. 36, great. Whatever it is. But I love the idea of a thing that has a beginning and an end on both the macro and the micro sense. You know, like the, I agree with you. I think the days of like, why the last man right. are a little bit done. Much as I love why the last man. Sure. You know, much as I love Preacher or Sandman. 100 bullets. Yeah, um, man. Yeah. Walking Dead even. Like, Certainly. I don't. I don't know how... I mean, and those guys no lie. doing that can keep doing that, but you know, it's like it's it's just not my bag. Well, and I think in the case of Walking Dead, the good news is the television series came at a good time, so that there is this new audience, and really is that anomaly of it impacting comic book sales in a way that mm-hmm. I think so many of us all are like, oh man, now the TV and movies are really ramping up. Look out, watch these numbers tick up for Marvel and DC on all these great books. And it, I, it, doesn't, it doesn't look like it's happened. I don't know what, what you've discovered in your journalistic uh, You know, pursuit. it's funny. Like I, I remember talking to a producer about this a couple of years ago that like – the proliferation of superhero content allows it for the casual fan to scratch an itch in a very simple way and sort of move on. Like what you really want to do is watch a Spider-Man movie. You can watch a Spider-Man movie and and have a Spider-Man adventure and then go about your day. Yep. Like that doesn't necessarily mean that you are going to say, you know what I want to do now? I want to read ten thousand issues of Spider-Man. No, it's, <laughs> 
like I got my jollies and I'm moving on and I'm going to go on to the next thing. And it could be a video game. It could be a movie. It could be a TV show. It could be like so much of this thing is around that, that I can get my fix in ways that do not necessarily need to be the comic book version of it. I mean, I feel like Walking Dead has translated back to the books because you can't get that fix anywhere else. Like, that is the only place where you can get the Walking Dead experience. True. It's the only, you know, and so I want more of this. I'm going to go back and buy these hundred comics and read them all. (laughs) Whereas if I want a Batman adventure, there's 80 different places I can go and get one that's not a comic book. No question. You're right. And also uh, the satisfaction of uh, playing and being Batman in the uh, video games, I totally. mean, you know, yeah, and I and I realize that in the sophistication in video games and how that has really kind of scratched that itch for a lot of people. That um, you know, yeah, I think I think comics obviously has to compete with that realm as much as they do TV and film. So yeah, I mean, if you if you want like one of the better Batman adventures, like it's either Arkham Asylum or Arkham Knights or Arkham whatever the next one yeah. is Arkham <laughs> Avenger Arkham yep. yeah, <laughs> you man. Know, and every, every San Diego man every San Diego it's right there on Petco Park man I know there's a giant Batman in the middle of E3 every year because <laughs> he's a giant Batman in E3 and the games are great and they got like Deanie to consult on stuff and of course it's going to be good and like you know if at the end of the day all you want to do is spend two hours with Batman. There's ways to do that that do not necessarily have to involve comic books. Was Zeb Wells running Alphas when uh, – and was he the showrunner or was it somebody different uh, that was running Alphas? Um, when I was – I was on the first season of Alphas and the showrunner was a guy named uh, Ira Stephen Bear. Oh, sure. Who, of course. Yeah. Tell that, people. That, tell people about Ira Stephen Bear. I'm my huge the great fan. And, the great and wonderful Ira Stephen Bear who was on The Next Generation – um, Star Trek Next Generation at this point now, like 20, 25 years ago, Good and from there went on to run Deep Space Nine. Hell yeah. For my money is is the best of the l- latter generation Star Trek shows. I agree, sir. <laughs> yeah, and then went on to the new Twilight Zone and the 4400 and is currently on Outlander. But, uh, but yeah, was running the first season of Alphas. And Zach Penn, who created it, was the number two. Uh, it was Zach Penn. I always and, and and maybe that's who I was thinking of. Did Zeb Wells write for it as well or no? Um, I don't know if he was on the second season or not, but he wasn't in the room on the first. Okay, and I might be, I might have been thinking of Zach Penn. I totally forgot that Iris Stephen Bear was the showrunner because yeah, I am I am with you, sir. And I got to tell you, uh, one of my great geek moments was meeting Avery Brooks and just like I, and I was already <laughs> I was already a fan of 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 his from his uh, Spencer and Man ca- uh, called Hawk days. <laughs> and 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 it was so exciting to meet Captain Cisco and yeah it's just you know really Ira Bear for stretching the Trek idea and it was so the pushback from traditionalists and and I think it, it's very reminiscent of what comic book people hear today of well you can't do that Star Trek is about everyone getting along and it's like yeah, yeah if everyone gets along there's no fucking conflict and sto- <laughs> and good story needs conflict and and God man just a good exploration of religion and politics and. Um, yeah. And and just um, really really great storytelling. I, no, I love Deep Space Nine. I miss it so much. It was such a great yeah. show. I mean, a lot of the reasons why people love Battlestar Galactica were first 
incubated on Deep Space Nine because Ron Moore was yep. in that room and that's where he learned how to write and working for Ira who loves that stuff and you can see all of the like terrorism and war and religion and prison and all of these themes that would eventually come up in, in Battlestar had been cooked for the first time like the test lab was Deep Space Nine and it also I mean as much as I love Battlestar Battlestar got occasionally a little self-inflated at times you know like it, it knew the importance of the subjects it was dealing with and made sure that the viewer never forgot the importance of the subject that it was dealing with whereas ds9 snuck it in in a slightly more subtle way you know yeah. like if you're going to do an episode i think it was far beyond the stars which is when you know cisco is time you know sort of pseudo time traveled back to the 1950s and he's a black science fiction writer working yeah. for a pulp magazine yeah. and dealing with like the, the nature of creation and race and class and all of that stuff in a science fiction TV show about a dude who runs a starship. It's, you know, it's phenomenal metaphorical storytelling. Absolutely, man. And yeah, and it harkens back to that. Uh, I want to say, wasn't it um, EC Comics where they wanted to do either they did it or they wanted to do it? And I can't remember. I think they might have done it where it was the sci fi story and the lead has a helmet on the whole time. And at the very end of the story, he he takes it off and you realize it's a black guy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing that science fiction does better than anything else. Oh, yeah, man. Twilight Zone and Westerns did it as well. I mean, it, you know, it's it's a good excuse to tell contemporary stories and disguise, mm -hmm. you know, obvious tropes and everything in. OK, well, instead of racism, we've got xenophobia and it's aliens that we're afraid of as opposed to our neighbors next door. You know, right. like totally. That. Yeah, man. No, cool stuff. Well, and I was going to ask because Alphas was one of those shows that it's it's too bad because I think if Alphas was coming out now, it would be part of the zeitgeist that mainstream audiences have finally realized, oh, this stuff can be good and it is entertaining. And, you know, shit that we've always known as as people who appreciate. I hate geek and nerd culture is have you guys come up with a better term? I mean, I, I just it's because especially considering a lot of this shit is mainstream now and it's like, OK, how come these guys can like Game of Thrones and, and nobody's <laughs> shitting on them for it when, you know, we liked it. They're asking, all right, you're going to go home and play Dungeons and Dragons after this, too. And, you know, whatever. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know. Like, I, I feel like, you know, geek and nerd are sort of co-opted as the like we remember where we came from. You know, okay. like we, right. we remember the pain we endured by being called a geek and a nerd. <laughs> and so we're embracing it and spinning it. You know, it's 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 a little bit in a in a weird way akin to the to the black community's use of the N word, and they like here was a a um, yeah. badge of hatred that you know had been just bandied about as if it was you know a thing that didn't have any cost. Whereas you know if we swallow it and co-opt it and twist it and make it our own, then it can be a sort of you know badge of of similarity of of brotherhood. I feel like geek and nerd while not quite as loaded a word um the spirit behind it i think still still plays it's like you know charlie brown was a nerd and they hated him because he was a nerd and watching those old specials it's like you're such a nerd chuck I'm like what come on i'm just a guy who likes stuff that's okay right well and i was gonna say because now there's this in uh uh, inner geek shaming and and hate going back and forth and stuff. And it's like, God, remember the kinder, gentler days when you just had to worry about the jocks making fun of what you liked as opposed, yeah. <laughs> as 
as I mean, opposed that's... to the bullshit now of the Star Wars people, the Star Trek people, and the fan fiction people are being shamed. And now it's like, oh, man, good Christ, I mean, what is going on? It isn't very much. It is a thing that happens when a minority becomes, if not the majority, at least comes off from the fringe. Is the like now that we can stop fighting them, we start fighting each other. <laughs> you know, and it happens every time. Jesus. You're right. You know, though, it's man. like when it was just like you and me against everybody else. We are the best friends ever. <laughs> but if it's like you and me and a hundred other people against those like two hundred other people. You're a bit of a dick, aren't you? Like, man, come on, dude. Like, couldn't you do that better? Why does your hair look like that? You're funky. Like, all of those things just happen once you start to get numbers. I guess, man. Jesus. <laughs> Cohesion um, falls apart. It's sad. It's too bad because, yeah, it's – I don't know. Uh, I Well, my point about alphas was too that, yeah, I mean, I think people, if you if you missed it the first time, should really go to Netflix if it's still on Netflix. I'm not sure if it is right now or not because they always- – I, I believe it is. Good. I believe it is. You know, like I, I cannot quite speak to the second season of Alphas. I had some friends who were on it, but I was not on it. And- Understood. In that way that, like, you know, when you, you dated this girl, and she was awesome, and you loved her quite a bit, and then she broke up with you, and then went on to date some other guy, you know, got married and was happy. It's like, I, I understand that you moved on, and that's all good, but forgive me if I don't show up to the wedding <laughs> to congratulate you for moving on, because, you know, you don't, nobody's going to love you like I loved you. That's my, that's, so, that's my Alan Moore analogy. Go ahead, and then I'll tell you my Alan Moore analogy. Go ahead. Yeah, but it's like I haven't seen it only because I feel like I don't I don't want to know that you moved on and are happy, Alphas. I, I just prefer <laughs> to love you the way I loved you. When when people interview Alan Moore and they constantly ask him about Watchmen and then or or just superhero stuff in general for that he you know did for DC or Marvel, and everyone's like, Why is Alan Moore so angry? It's exactly that. It's like you you built this lovely home with an amazing pool with your ex-wife. You got divorced. And anytime somebody comes up and it's like, you know, I was at your house. And man, that pool still rocks. You know, you want let's talk about the pool. It's like, yeah, fuck the pool. My ex-wife's still using it. And I got I had to go to a new place, man. The hell with them. Yeah. Yeah. So. Like I I wonder how excited even today, like George Lucas and Steven Spielberg are to talk about Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Which manifestly is a movie about divorce and breaking up in which Lucas was going through a divorce and Spielberg had just broken up with like Amy Irving, I think. Mm -hmm. And so this is a movie in which you rip the hero's heart out and show it to him. That's hilarious. Literally, that's what that movie is about. That's awesome. <laughs> is that on, man, I like, well, first of all, I like the theory. Is that, is like, have they said this was, you know, kind of our metaphor? Or? Yeah, no. I mean, I don't know exactly how, like, candid they've been about it, but if you look at the timelines of those two dudes' lives, and, you know, yes, that's where Spielberg then met kept Kate Capshaw, and they got married and lived happily ever after, and Lucas would eventually move on, but that was the moment where, like, both of our hearts are broken, we're going to make the bleakest fucking Indiana Jones movie, where we're ripping people's hearts out. That's amazing, man. <laughs> that's crazy. You know, for me, it's just, and and I, I know little kids like it, but eating all the the bugs and the, and the snakes and shit and the eels and all that crap that's where i get grossed out oh yeah yeah that's a little too no, gross i can handle i can handle Khalifi and then handling handing him his own heart and all that shit it is a it is a deeply darkly screwed up movie <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic man i um well and i mean you know do you do you want to keep writing television or film or whatever if the opportunities present themselves or are you pitching as well 
You know, like it's it is it is still a, a thing that I that I dream of, and hopefully, you know, my reach does not exceed my grasp, or does exceed my grasp. However, that saying goes. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's still it's still a thing that I'm that I'm actively hammering away at. But at the same time, like also, I, I'm lucky in that I have a lot of TV writer friends who have, for most of their lives, trained to be TV writers, and so when they're not actively TV writers, they're sort of just like, I don't have any money. What's yeah, happening? no kidding, man. No, I'm happy. You know, whereas like I spent, you know, at this point, a little over 20 years as a journalist. So I can still, all right, I'm going to go get a job. <laughs> I can go do that and I can have fun at it and I can, you know, be fulfilled by being a journalist as much of a journalist in giant air quotes as you can call an entertainment journalist, but still. No, but I understand. And you worked for The Hollywood Reporter. You worked for Entertainment Weekly as well. Yeah, yeah, and then there was a there was a time there was my time in the wild as as I called my freelance like year and a half where okay. I was working for IO9 and Vulture and Empire Magazine and Wired and like doing that thing where I'm not on staff but everybody I worked with on staff is now at another staff. So hey guys, how would you like to throw me some work, <laughs> buddy? <laughs> and and currently deputy editor at uh, at playboy.com and I am fascinated by that because I uh work and live in Chicago uh, was here in the mid 90s when playboy.com really got up off the ground and you know I just saw um uh, within the last 6 months that Bob Guccione documentary which was excellent and just mm. that Playboy and Penthouse faced really the same problem of you know, internet coming and hey, we got nudie porn too. And guess what? It's free. Um, so how do you compete? How do you reinvent yourself? And it was fun to see. And also, I, I'm interested. I, I didn't read the full article, but there was a piece of it at, at Media Bistro of of you talking about how to pitch to Playboy.com today, and and essentially. Um, changing the the nature of Playboy.com. So I'll ask you the general question, and you can get into any specifics in terms of, like, yeah, just that transition and how much you were there at the start of, like, okay, we you know we need to be something different than a what's on the newsstand now, and also obviously uh, possibly getting back to a great tradition of Playboys that. If you can't get past the centerfold in the nude pictures, you might have forgotten about an amazing uh, journalistic and literary history that Hefner had going on ever since the magazine started, you know, 60 years ago. Yeah. I mean, when I when I was first, you know, approached about the job, the pitch, even at the time, and this was like July of last year, mm -hmm. they said it's going to be a safer work site. Like we realized going into this, you know, that that you cannot monetize nipples on the Internet. You know, like there's no way to get people to pay for that because mm -hmm. it's free everywhere. Like there's, you know, you, you can't be like selling sand in the desert. So the idea from the from the very beginning was like we're we're buying the domain back from the, as they refer to, Canadian pornographers who are currently running it. Um, and we're taking all the naked ladies off and we're tucking them behind a completely different site. And we're going to make Playboy.com sort of a life, a men's lifestyle destination. And so from the very beginning, it was, we have, to, we have to not rely on that thing that Playboy had relied on for so long. So what do we do instead? You know, like we can still have girls on the site. Like we don't have to, we don't have to become monks. Like <laughs> we can still be, you know, people coming to Playboy for a thing can still sort of get that thing. Mm -hmm. But what else are we going to be? 
you know, and then the conversation very quickly turned around to, it's like, well, we have to kind of remind people why Playboy was what Playboy was in the 60s and the 70s, especially like the heydays of Playboy. And it was, yes, there were the girls next door in the middle for those 12 pages, but it was the first aspirational brand. It was the first, like, you're a dude who's 23. You got your first job. You got your first big check. You got your first apartment. You got your first car. What should all of these things be? You know, what should you wear? What should you listen to? What should yeah. you read? What should you, you know, how should you dress? Where should you go? What should you drink? Like, how to become... The a refined gentleman of taste, like how to be how to be the most interesting person at any party you go to. The carrot at the end of that stick was always the girl next door. Like that was that was the the alchemy of Playboy. Was here's everything you need to know to have a chance with the girl next door. Yep. So let's go back to that. Like let's go back to the arming the man of today with the ammunition he needs to be a gentleman <laughs> of culture. You know. Yeah, man. And. And so finding the way to lean into that on the website, and especially like for me doing the the entertainment coverage and for, you know, a couple other guys, guy doing the style and nightlife and the guy doing the sex and culture, you know, is is recapturing that feel, that essence of like, here's what you need. Like we're we're giving you the tools to be the smartest, funniest, most, you know, savvy guy in the room. And and that's been the sort of the, the star we've been guiding ourselves by for the last like eight months. And the response has been really good because we've been able to redefine what that means, especially given some of Playboy's history. You know, like Hugh Hefner was a feminist. He was a self-motivated fe- feminist. Like he wanted women to have the rights to do whatever they wanted to do because he meant that they might sleep with him too. <laughs> Indeed. Absolutely. <laughs> You know, like there, it was not nearly as altruistic. I'm sure. Granted, I'm I am surmising <laughs> his his brain, his his thought process at the time. But it was you should be free to sleep with everybody because now I've got a better chance. You know, and so like leaning into the idea that Hef was all about like homosexual rights, absolutely, feminism, absolutely. Yep. I don't care what you do, do it all. Doesn't yep. matter to me. Like you should just have the right to do it all. You should have the right to read it all. You should have the right to go anywhere you want to go and do whatever you want to do when you get there. And so, like, what does that mean for today? It's like, well, you know, the the self-respecting bachelor of either homo or heterosexuality, you know, whatever bent your bend is leaning, you know, you ought to know about it. Like, if we're going to do a a list of the 100 sexiest movies of all time, there ought to be some gay movies on there. There ought to be some lesbian movies on there. There ought to be every kind of movie on there. Because, you know, why draw that line? You know, like, why, why not tell dudes? It's like, you know, this is all fine. That's <laughs> cool. all good. None of it is getting in the way of you doing whatever it is you're going to do. But you should know. Like, you should understand what these things mean. You should understand what it means when, you know, Indiana decides that they don't want to cater to gay people if they don't have to. You know, like, how does that impact you? Um, and it's been fascinating and sort of enriching in a way to just be able to define a thing, to, to redefine a 60-year-old brand, you know, that is one of the last dozen brands left in the world that mean anything to anybody. Absolutely. Yes, indeed. You know, to yeah. be able to kind of like sit, if not in the driver's seat, next to the dude who's in the driver's seat. And be like, so what do we do now? What should we do now? Like, is it cool? Yeah. Can we afford it? Maybe. Let's give it a try. That's cool. And, you know, God, you've really um, – uh, you, you had Will Wheaton interviewing Patton Oswalt at the beginning of the year for the Playboy interview. 
and yeah, and like a lot of it's been just hey, you know what would be cool? Yeah, what would be cool? What if like let's get Pat Oswalt? Yeah, I love Pat Oswalt. Who should we get to do it? Well, I know John Rogers pretty well, and John Rogers knows Will Wheaton pretty well, so maybe John and can connect us all, and maybe Will can do it. Wait, Will knows Pat a little bit. Excellent. Go make it happen. That's you know, awesome, like, and that's in the tradition of those classic, really good Playboy interviews that still read really well. A lot of them do, and I know a lot of them have been collected uh, in books and things like that. Uh, you know, soft cover and, and regular books, or digital books that you can buy on Amazon or wherever you buy eBooks and everything, and and really appreciate that. And it is wonderful to see that. Yeah, you're able to add to that. And and capture the culture where it is now, as Playboy always has done, and do it in a way, too, that will appeal to geeks. Yeah. I mean, that was I, – I warned my boss when he hired me. I was like, so you know, I'm a bit of a nerd, so <laughs> there's going to be, like, a bit of a nerd lean to this. He's like, it's fine. Avengers 2 will be coming out. I'm like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> you're right. We live We live in a nerd culture now anyway. So it is It is in no way a hindrance that I'm a nerd because, you know, everybody's a nerd now. Sure. Exactly. Want. Yeah. No shit. Exactly. <laughs> man. Well, and that's like I said with Game of Thrones or another thing, too, you know, because I really want to like for people who don't know about pay- Playboy's past and nerd cred, um, you know, like James Bond coming to American interests and stuff, Playboy had a lot to do with that. It was serialized in Playboy. And I would think with, you know, whenever Spectre is finally coming out, I forget if it's this year or next year. Yeah, um, it's this November. It is this November. So, yeah, is there are there plans to bring back any features? I always love that about Sports Illustrated, that they're able to, like, kind of go back to their own history. And that is truly the great thing. You've got uh, Ian Fleming, Arthur C. Clarke, real hard, great uh, Asimov, really great people that have – I think Asimov wrote for Playboy. I'd be surprised if he didn't. Uh, yeah. No, I mean, it's going through that list is kind of awe-inspiring. Like Fahrenheit 451, first hit print in Playboy. Bradbury. It was serialized awesome. in Playboy. Yep. You know, the problem is, as I discovered, is that because this was like 1962, <laughs> nobody was doing like digital rights deals for stuff. Okay, okay. You know, so so New ball discovering game. what we have the rights to reprint and what we don't is is its own separate because again, record keeping was not quite what it was in 1973 as it is today. Sure. So like tracking down like we've got a great like archival system and we've got librarians who keep track of all that stuff but even still <laughs> like over 60 years of stuff it's like do we have the rights to reprint like alex haley's muhammad ali interviews right i don't know wow but let's see if oh we do. man well that's and that's kind of yeah well that's what i was wondering is um and and i guess right ultimately it is the question of how digital rights are handled certainly that was the hurdle that uh, television had to go through and one of the main planks of the writer's strike uh, back in, in the mid-2000s and everything was, okay, these guys aren't being compensated for this new way in DVDs and digital streaming that, you know, TV is now being presented and deals were kind of cut in the VCR era. And now all of a sudden they're, you know, with streaming and, and on demand and stuff like that, how, how are people compensated? So, yeah, I suppose literature it's the same problem. Yeah. I mean, it's just having to go back and seeing where things lie and seeing what we do have the rights, what we don't, what we can renegotiate. You know, a lot of the fiction is weird that way because it's just for serial. Like, sure. Stephen King's going to write a story. It belongs to Stephen King. Like, of course. We just can't keep reprinting it. But right. Maybe there's a way to go back and say, hey, would you mind if we 
reprinted this. Hey, Chuck Palahniuk, you've got Fight Club 2 coming out. Would you mind if we reprinted the zombie story you wrote? And nine times out of ten, so far anyway, people seem kind of cool about it. But the older, the, the further back you go, the, the trickier it gets. Understood. And I just wondered, too, if, you know... Um, there was the opportunity more for, as you say, like Alex Haley interviewing Muhammad Ali. Alex Haley, for people who don't remember, the man who brought gave us roots, uh, the unauthor, and I always forget the autobiography of, of Malcolm X as well. Yeah, you know, great, great, uh, wonderful writer. Um, but yeah, I mean, and a guy that was writing for Playboy as well. So yeah, I mean, again, it's you know one of the coolest things I found online, and it's at archive.org. Uh, Chicago radio interviewer Studs Terkel interviewed mm. Arthur C. Clarke back in 1959 about the space race. And it was wow. so much fun to hear Arthur C. Clarke speculate in terms of where science was and what we knew in 1959. And he was talking about deep space missions. And when we get to the other planets in the solar system, should we find an atmosphere on the planets? Because those were still questions back in 1959. <laughs> and it's very interesting to appreciate that kind of thinking in perspective and see where people's heads were. And again, play boy was so of the moment in terms of this is where the culture is now this is guiding those 20 somethings into what's cool now and everything god i you know i last uh summer went to a garage sale and found uh oh god now i'm blanking uh, kim novak was on the cover and it was like a ninth, mm. early 1965 playboy and they had in addition to that they had a beatles feature that was really inter interesting and so the beatles had just like Hit America, you know, back in 64. So it's just been about a calendar year since their debut. And further, they had, um, like they do for college basketball and football, they had a top 50 for jazz or a top 25 for jazz. And, wow, it, and, yeah. it, and it was awesome. And it was the best singers, the best trumpeters, the best drummers. And it was thrilling. And it was really this like very in-depth analysis of jazz music in 1965. And beautiful kind of Leroy Neiman looking illustrations of Sinatra and Duke Ellington and uh, amazing. It was probably Leroy Neiman because there's like paintings of his all over the walls in the office. There you go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly, man. <laughs> you know, like it's it's funny. Like I, I never thought of it until just now, but it feels like, you know, Hugh Hefner was as much a futurist as anybody else was. He just was able to actually make the future he wanted a reality. Sure. Like, he was a dude who wanted to build for himself a world. He had an idea of this world that he wanted to live in and figured out a way to will it into existence. Like, here's what I want. I want a mansion. I want a yacht. I want a plane. I want nightclubs. I want to live like this thing that doesn't exist yet, but I want it. And, you know, 40 years in, like, he had all of that stuff. Like, he's as much a fantasist as anybody else was with the means to actually make that fantasy. Like, he's Tony Stark. Of sex. <laughs> totally, man. Have you met him yet? <laughs> um, no, no. It's still on my bucket list. Like, I've been to the mansion, and I'm, cool. uh, I feel like I saw him, like, hiding in the upper reaches, like, looking down, like, who are these plebeians on my lawn? <laughs> <laughs> Somebody remove the filth. You know, did you, you know, I, uh, in the 90s, I worked at a sports talk station and a, a several of our hosts, uh, because Playboy still had their offices here in, in Chicago. Mm. I, I don't know if they still do or not. I don't think they do. No, yeah, they shut it down with it all out here. Yeah, that's what I figured, man. And I'm right by the old Playboy building, too. But Christy, Hugh's daughter, 
was still living here and got to be real good friends with a lot of our hosts and invited one of the hosts to the mansion. And I was the guy, unfortunately, who had to stay back at the ranch and uh, (laughs) run the controls as he was running into. And now it is like, uh, you know, part of the humor and stuff that, oh, look who's here. It's Martin Landau and it's James Kahn. And it's, you know, all these guys that in their day were in their prime were certainly like, God damn, it's Martin Landau. And now it's, you know, Martin Landau's, you know, 80 whatever and hanging out and stuff. <laughs> but literally, you know, interviewed Robert Culp and, uh, you know, uh, oh, God, Minnie Me was there, Vern uh, Troyer or whatever, oh, God. you know, and, and swimming naked in the grotto with with uh, w- with on the back of a of a naked playmate and stuff. Of course he was. And, you know, and in commercials, like, you know, my nickname on radio is Shaky and like Shaky, I swear to God, I never thought I'd see this. This is amazing. I just like him talking to Martin Lando on the on the at the bar. And then Vern Troyer r- runs by totally naked, dang, just just dangling as he's running by. And I'm like, that's great, Mike. I'm here, uh, you know, looking at the same four walls that I do every day in Chicago. You go have fun. (laughs) Just crying to myself. I know. Well, maybe he got to use some of the uh, tunnels that are underneath the Playboy Mansion. I saw that online today, man. That's there's some Wayne Manor action that have had going on. <laughs> what the hell, man? Well, and also remember yeah. he uh, he was screening the '40s Batman serial, and you know that's kind of one of the I don't know if it's true or not, but prior to the Dozier '66 Batman series happening, you know Hef was running the old serial as kind of like isn't this fun camp. And and it wouldn't it, surprise me, you know. And yeah, this is that's kind of part of the rumor of where, you know, maybe that's part of the reason why Dozier and ABC got the or Fox got the idea to do uh, to do Batman. <laughs> yeah, the 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 tunnels under the Playboy Mansion is my favorite thing ever, um, only because we made it up all of it. Did you really? <laughs> we invented it. It was our it was our Fourth of July joke. That's right. <laughs> Was it really for last year? Was it for the Fourth of July thing? That's hilarious. It, it was for this year. It was. It was like. You oh, know, you mean April Fool's Day? Whatever. Yeah, April. Sorry, for this. I kept doing that. I don't know why. But yeah, for <laughs> April Fool's Day. Um. Yeah, like two weeks ago, we were like, "What should we do?" Like, I don't know. What if? And we just we spun this thing out of whole cloth. It's like, what if there are, what if, what if there were tunnels under there? First, it was what if he was Batman? What if we never knew that like Hugh Hefner was actually Batman? <laughs> And had a bat cave under the mansion. And they were like, well, what else could be under the mansion? It's like, how about tunnels to like celebrity houses? So our art director like found, we went to the mansion, we got plans, we got, we dug up the old architectural plans and we just drew on tunnels leading to James Kahn and Jack Nicholson and Warren Beatty's house. And then we just sort of seeded it onto the internet and it became its own wonderful, amazing thing. That you see, now that's a good Makes sense, April Fool's joke. Because most of the time, you wake up on on April first, and literally now on the internet, you wake up, you see the news, and you're like, "All right, fuck you, that's fake. Fuck you, that's fake." But of course, again, as you said, the man who owned his own bunny jet and the grotto and all these other things, of course, have had tunnels underneath the Playboy yeah. man. I mean, that absolutely would make sense, and we would I mean, take the, that for being <laughs> real. The the key the key to it for me was. I guess it was a couple of years ago, like Think Geek did the Tauntaun sleeping bags was their first like April Fool's Day gag or one of their first. It was their biggest one. And the reason it worked is because you wanted it to be true. Like you wanted so badly to be able to buy one of those because it's a great idea. And the world is better if that actually was the real deal. And we're like, but see, this is this is the thing. People would totally believe this. And in fact, they want it to be true. Like they want to believe that Hugh Hefner had tunnels under the mansion. Like, it doesn't hurt anybody to believe it. It just makes the legend even legendarier. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no question. You know, and also, and it, go ahead, please. 
No, as you can say, like the the best part was then watching people like you know Bill O'Reilly get pissed off because he fell for it. <laughs> Good. <laughs> like watching Fox News do a whole segment about how like the media has a responsibility to the truth. And oh, we're like, good yeah, we just made this up, buddy. It's like, sorry, like you got taken and now you feel bad. So, well, <laughs> whoops. It's funny. You know, I just had Matt Brady on, who used to be one of the editors of Newsarama, one of the co-owners of mm-hmm. Newsarama back in the day. Yeah. And uh, Frank Thierry and I forget who else said Marvel wanted to do a gag that Spider-Man was joining the X-Men. And Matt's like, no, we're not going to run it. It's too bullshitty. And it's uh, we're a news site. OK, sorry. And like, oh, come on, play along. And they were really pissed at Marvel was really pissed that they wouldn't play along. And Matt's like, well, you know, I'm sorry. It's not the you know, it's really not that great of a, you know joke or whatever <laughs> and also coming from radio we our, our rock station would play april fool pranks and yeah man it, after a while it wasn't fun and it was tough to come up with something that as you say was something that people wanted to believe and were plausible and also like all right what are you doing this year and it's like well if you already know right. then you know that there's no santa claus so let's not you know keep bullshitting people let's you know let other people do it that you know still have a, a bit of trust out there or also that they wouldn't expect an april fool's joke from these people yeah, you know, and then the other key was like we we dropped it on like March thirtieth. Like we did it a couple of days early. Smart. And we're like, yeah, we'll just we'll let it kind of breathe and get some steam and 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 see what happens to it. And then we on on the first revealed it, but it was just so delicious and wonderful <laughs> and. <fun. laughs> And then the, the, here was the best part. Like at the end of the article, it was like, hey, and if you have – because the article was playing it straight. It was like, holy shit, you won't believe what we found. And we took pictures of the – of uh, you know walking into the archives. We found actual real Polaroids of them building the grotto. And we're like, what construction project is this? Dated 1977. And at the very tail end, it was like, hey, if you've ever been through these tunnels, let us know. We're looking for independent confirmation. And we had this woman – on some like Business Insider Australia, it was like, oh yeah, I've been to these tunnels. Hilarious, fantastic. <laughs> like, Thank you very much for not remembering what you did at all in the 1980s. <laughs> or, or well, this is my TV moment to get on all these shows. Oh, I remember them, the tunnels. Yes, oh, it yeah. was. And then and Hef made a pass at me, and you know, yeah, I can, I could totally see that. Good God, <laughs> Jesus, man. That's the, that, you know that's the lousy environment that we live in. I want to I want to get back to comics for a second and, and give half more credit and cred mm. for younger people that don't know, you know that the hand that he held out to people like Jack Cole, the creator of Plastic Man, and and you know gave him the opportunity and 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 Cole did a lot of Playboy work in the fifties and the best example of course Harvey Kurtzman who had that mm-hmm. breakup with. Um, and now I'm blanking. Uh, the uh, Mad Magazine. Uh, oh God, his dad, oh, yeah, Grames. Yeah, Gaines. Yeah, Bill Gaines. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. when when things went sour with Bill Gaines and everything, Kurtzman uh, went and and started a brand new slick. And I I can't remember the name of the slick now. I can't either. But, it, it escapes me. But, but I mean, Heff yeah. has always been sort of a champion of the arts in any way that he could find it. Like the, the magazine still has cartoons in it. Had oh, absolutely. For 60 years. Like he just loves that. Stuff. Little Annie Fanny, Will Elder, man. Absolutely. Oh, in sure. fact, I even say and I and I know that Palmiotti and Amanda Connor took it as the compliment it was attended as. But today's Harley Quinn. That's little Annie Fanny. Yeah, it's no, absolutely. The, the little, DNA is there. Yeah. And I'm like, good for you guys, man. You guys get to do your Will your Will Elder riff and get to do this awesome, you know, little Annie Fanny shit with like Kurtzman and Elder did. That's wonderful. And so, DC gets to pay for it. Smart, pretty smart. Well, and I think you know, honestly, and I and I'm curious as far as your your career. If we're okay for a couple more minutes, 
Are we okay? Yeah, yeah. I got another like ten minutes in me. Okay, sounds good. Well, I, I'm just. I think you are. Um, uh, the fact that you are kind of putting yourself out there on podcasts. Your stuff with Kevin Smith is very funny. Your stuff with the Nerdist Writers Comics panel is is awesome and entertaining and informative as well. But does the environment seem? easier now as you and and really i guess you're waiting to see or maybe you've got some projects going on but it seems like you have a uh higher profile than you did obviously in the days of the highwaymen um mm. and and that you're able to kind of hopefully gather an audience that will come with you on whatever new creator owned stuff you have even beyond genius and stuff i i don't know if you're uh you know still testing the waters or and if that's part of the game plan or, you know, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I I love comics. You know, sure. there, there's always going to be a room in my life to make comics. Um, whether those comics, I mean, my, my guess, my inkling is that most of those comics are going to be creator-owned. Most of them are going to be sort of real-worldy or sort of pushed real-world stuff. Like, there might be a science fiction thing here and there. There might be a Western thing that I want to do. I got this sports comic I want to do that nobody would listen to, like, two or three years ago. Cool. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's it's funny. Like, the my, my career kind of started in this weird twin track where, like, Monster Tech Network and The Highwaymen both came out in, like, the same month. And so this, like, tiny indie graphic novel and then a Wildstorm owned by DC thing. And so, like, there's always been a part of me that's kind of hovered between those two worlds, mm -hmm. you know, the, the big two or, you know, at this point now, you know, the big two and a half. <laughs> there's, there's always somebody like Dark Horse or IDW kind of sniffing up and oh, yeah. an image being its own image thing. Yeah. But, you know, like, the, the, the Marvel and DC of it, like, because I like to build worlds less than I like embroidering worlds, you know, like, I'm not I'm, – I'm not all of that like excited about like hopping on to like a work for hire book to do a run on insert character name here. Mm -hmm. um, not that I wouldn't like there's there's always a there's always a way to find a thing interesting for you. I mean, you know, and Mark Wade is like the king of that. Mark Wade is the king of like finding a character that you are so intimately familiar with and then finding a new thing you never actually thought about. Completely agree. Character. Absolutely. Like he's. He's maybe the best at this, at that. Good Christ, everyone had written out Daredevil. And it got to the point yeah. where Diggle, who Andy Diggle, who I think is an excellent writer, I got to be honest, I wasn't crazy about his Daredevil because it's like, how much darker can this shit go? And Mark, Mark <laughs> Wade's like, yeah, I remember in the 60s when uh, Daredevil was happy and people liked Daredevil. And it's like, yeah, you do. <laughs> and I got Chris yeah. Somney to draw it and it's going to be excellent. And it's like, yes, it is. <laughs> You're absolutely right. <laughs> Sold. You know, like to be able to find that nugget of a character that you're like so familiar with and, you know, previously thought tired of um, would be just a treat, would be a gem. But, you know, like there's there's the TV stuff that I'm interested in. There's some movie stuff that I'm interested in. There's the journalism stuff at the same time, like finding the bandwidth to do, you know, a run on something is is getting increasingly hard. Um, but, you know, I'm never going to go away forever. Like I just I can't. I can't leave this behind. Like it's the it, it it's it was the entry vector for me into all of this stuff. And you know, you never you never forget the girl who brung you. I understand. No, and I well, and again, I think 
aligning yourself as you have with uh, the Nerdist and stuff, uh, that's got to have brought you uh, new – I hope it's brought you new readers. And I would think that uh, working with Kev, uh, Kevin Smith on Fat Man on Batman and, you know, it's fun. I mean you guys are just hanging out uh, doing those uh, commentaries and stuff. <laughs> uh, but they're, they're, they're very funny and, and I hope that uh, it's translating into uh, new readers for you. Have, you. have you experienced even anecdotally emails or meeting guys at conventions and women at conventions that say, hey, this is how I discovered you? And now I'm reading your stuff. Yeah, I mean, every now and again, like I'll just—I mean, it, it's been—it's been a San Diego since I've started like frequenting the the Fat Man on Batman, going to the Fat Cave, mm-hmm. as, <laughs> as Kev likes to call it. Um, <laughs> so I'm not sure what that that experience will be in San Diego, but like every now and again, I'll go to like you know the Long Beach Con, or I'll go to to Phoenix for this con or whatever, and it's like, oh hey, I love you, he's really good on that. Like, oh dude, thanks. Where can I find your stuff? Oh okay, well. Here's the comicsology link. Have a good time. Um, you know, I'd like to think that that this sort of you know, and we we are now in a world in which it is impossible to succeed in mass media without having some sort of personal brand. You know, yes. the 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 work being good enough is no longer on the table. I'm hip. It's you know, you have to be you know. You have to be a thing people can recognize and either align themselves with or against. Yes. You know. <laughs> Very and, much so. Yes. You know, and there are some people who do that incredibly well. I mean, there are some people who just give – I mean, Warren Ellis was the king of that, like Neil Gaiman, the king of that. Yes, he did. You know, Good Kelly Sue DeConnick is the queen of this, of the like, you know, finding an audience that heretofore didn't exist and rallying them to you and the things that you do. You know, I mean, she's a ninja at that. Here, here. You know, I don't, I, I don't know what Shaolin Temple she trained at, but you know, they should, <laughs> they should have tours. Um, so, so if all of this eventually is in service of that, then so be it. Like right now, I do it because it's fun, and you know, like I have spent way harder days than sitting in a room with Kevin as he smokes and we laugh about stuff. <laughs> you know, I've, I've had far tougher days. I understand. Than doing that, you know, like getting to work at, you know, Playboy HQ, uh, you know, while I can't say that it's all like, you know, wine and roses and candy and milk and honey, it is still not the worst gig ever. I'm happy. Yeah, it <laughs> beats know? roofing for a living or, or you it, know. You know, it absolutely beats digging ditches. There you go, man. You know, the, the thing that, that I always remind myself, like it, however busy I might get, however bad it might seem, however little sleep I might accrue, I am not – you know, working a factory line somewhere. Amen. And and uh, and I'm the better for it. Understood. Because it's a factory. Because a factory doesn't want me doing that. Because I'm horrible at it. <laughs> are you? Are we going to hear you in up upcoming uh, Nerdist uh, Comics Writers panels? I know that it's it's tough when there are that many hosts, and gr- it, it's the reason why I do Word Balloon Solo that I don't mm-hmm. have to worry about anyone else's schedule except for the guest, obviously. And right, and so it's no. easier for me to do my my podcast that way. And certainly when it's you and Kevin, it's easy just going over to Kevin's and hanging out and watching a movie. But yeah, yeah. are we going to hear you on upcoming episodes soon? Um. I, I I think so. I don't know exactly when. Like that, I I'm sort of the 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 player to be named later. Okay. <laughs> for for the nursery, but like I I call I, I answer when the call is sounded. Um, and if if Ben and if Heath and if um, Adam Beecham and Adam, Lane. yeah, like if those guys, if one of them, you know, falls ill or trips or oversleeps or is hungover, like I get the hey, hey dude, can you be a meltdown? Because uh, you know, we we got a thing. 
Yeah, you're like or, the, in basketball terms, you're the sixth man, even though there's only four of them, and and you come in. So, but go totally, ahead. totally. Like I'm, I'm the I'm the Crash Davis of the Nerdist Writers <laughs> Podcast. <laughs> you're in the majors. What are you talking about? Crash Crash had the home run record for the minors. That's all. No, all no, right. no. Come I've on. I've been to the show once, man. I've been to the show. I'm your shoes for you, man. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome, man. No, honestly, I, I, you do. I, I like I said, I, I enjoyed Highwaymen when I read it uh, back in the day. And uh, I'm happy that uh, Genius is uh, continuing beyond the trade coming up in June and uh, Volume Two soon to come. And uh, no, you do you, you do excellent journalistic work as well at Playboy.com and the like. And I'm happy that uh, you're in, you're part of the podcast world as well. So, and I, as evidenced by this lovely conversation that we're having. So, uh, uh, stay in touch. I'd li- I'd love I'd love for you to come back and when you got something new to promote and and also love to talk more because I am I, I think. There's uh, and and uh, you know I'm going to get on this uh, in San Diego at the at the podcaster panel and and hopefully you're going to be part of that as well that uh, we are uh, we're at an interesting time with all the issues that are out there and now the spotlight really is on the geek culture and as we talked about you know how geek turns against geek ape has killed mm-hmm. ape in the in Planet yeah. of the Apes indeed <laughs> and no it's an it's a very interesting time and it's quite a tightrope that I think the people that are covering it have to walk. And uh, and I think that only, you know, again, makes uh, observing what's going on even that more interesting. And I would love to hear your point of view on that in, in future conversation. For sure, man. Absolutely. This was fun. Awesome, man. Anything you wanted to hit that we didn't hit? Oh, I don't think so. I mean, clearly, ISIS is a problem, but that's going to be solved in a later case. There you go. Neat story. And I uh, certainly hope you uh, follow uh, Mark's work, not only Genius, but uh, head over to Playboy.com. And uh, really, lots of great nerd culture stuff happening at Playboy.com. And, and Playboy's giving me no money to say this, but I, I do appreciate what they're doing. And as I say, it, it kind of calls back to their roots. So uh, Hef better know what's going on, and he better approve. I hope Mark gets that invitation to the grotto very soon. Let's uh, move on now to uh, talk to our pal Rob Salkowitz. Rob has uh, been a regular guest on Word Balloon since his book came out, Comic-Con in the Business of Pop Culture, uh, a few years ago. We talk about how long it's been. And uh, ever since then, I think Rob has really gotten uh, into uh, analyzing the geek market, what's happening at the conventions, what's happening with the publishers, uh, the way that the mainstream audience is finding and appreciating what's going on in comics and in film and in TV all of geek culture, and uh, Rob really has a great handle on it. But in particular, the Hugo Award Award nominations came out earlier this month, and um, there's a bit of infighting going on. And, you know, it happens with the Eisners, too. It's not unique to just the Hugo Awards, but it's a kind of a, an interesting example where it's not just fan versus fan, but also uh, certain websites, I think, are taking advantage of the situation as well. I'll let Rob get into the details with that in our conversation now on Word Balloon. He's back. It's Rob Salkowitz, everyone. It's uh, everyone's favorite industry watcher who uh, watches the geek world, uh, both the, from the business standpoint and the fan standpoint. He does excellent com- uh, columns at IVC2. Do I say that right, Rob? IVC2? ICV2. See, there you go. I always get my eye charts wrong. So it's ICV2. And, uh, and of course, he wrote uh, the book Comic-Con and the Business of Pop Culture. Did I say it right? Yes, you did. Ah, there we go. Good, man. F- fantastic. Thank God. Good to, good to talk to you again, my man. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's uh, It's been just about three years since that book came out. So the, so the future is actually starting to happen now. And uh, it's kind of good to come back and, 
and uh, have people keep me honest on it. Absolutely, man. No, and, and it's fun how to see how a lot of what you wrote out and we'll kind of gloss over the details as we have in previous conversations. But it is interesting to kind of, you know, st- you know, wet your finger and stick it in the air, see which way the wind is blowing these days. And uh, certainly what happened in the Hugo Award nominations is is an interesting story. And I, I want to give you the opportunity. You wrote a, You wrote a column about it. And uh, I want to give you the opportunity to like describe what you saw happen and, and what's going on with uh, some of these uh, fandom factions that are uh, facing off against each other, even when it comes to the Hugo Awards. Sure. And I want to qualify this by saying that I'm not a hardcore sci-fi fan. I have not voted in the Hugo Awards. I haven't been to that convention. Um, and I was just kind of watching it as a bystander, but I was watching this as part of what's going on in general in fandom right now. And absolutely, I mean, as, as we all know, Fans are a quarrelsome lot. You get, you know, five fans together in a room, you'll have six opinions expressed. <laughs> and and that's part of the fun. That's that's why we do this stuff. It's like we all know this stuff really well. We all have our, our opinions about it and love to talk about it, love to love to talk with each other about it. And that's a healthy thing. Um, what's starting to happen though is and is more than starting. I mean, this has been going on for a little while. In the media age that we live in right now, conversations that used to take place within fandom among knowledgeable and opinionated people of different opinions, let's say, that were no less fierce than the ones taking place right now, these days are, are becoming more public. And they're, they're taking place in, you know, on social media, on blogs, on places where people that don't have as much of a background about what's going on specifically get involved in these debates and they attach themselves to different positions because they think it's part of some bigger conflict that's going on and that, so what happened in the in the hugo awards is that the the last uh last year i believe there was a group of people that wanted to see the awards go to a more represent representative demographic so there's more uh women authors more people of color uh you know they they promoted and succeeded in getting recognized a bunch of writers who hadn't really been part of that process part of that conversation before uh, right, because for the for the longest time, it might have been established science fiction writers, and it you know I mean we've been having this conversation on Word Balloon, the white male dominate domination of these nominations and therefore awards, and you know and and so you know an attempt to maybe bring some balance so that people of color, people of various orientation, people of different backgrounds and diversities can all you know have their works represented at least from the nomination standpoint. Yeah, exactly. And the Hugos are a fan nominated and fan voted award. So what happens is I think that there's a lot more diversity in the people that are creating this stuff now than among the traditional hardcore readers. In science fiction, most of the demographics I've seen is that of all of the hobby niches, this one is the most uh, the most male, the most old school. Um, you read con reports of people that go to science fiction conventions, and you know, frankly, it's a lot of old guys. And as an old guy myself, sure. that's you know, no, yes. no, peace peace out to old guys. But uh, and those are the people who are reading this stuff and and casting their opinions about it. And the people who are writing it are actually more diverse than that. And you know, I mean, I know a lot of guys who just not because they're misogynist or anything, they just don't read a lot of books by women. So they're not aware that this stuff is out there. They don't vote for it. So having a concerted effort that brings this to the attention of more people, you know, we can argue about like, is that a good thing? Is it is it uh, is it putting something other than the merit of the work into it? Hard to say. But, uh, you know, I mean, that's a that's a valid conversation to have. 
But then a, a another group, uh, they called themselves the Sad Puppies, that have been organizing for a little while. Um, you know, we're very upset that the that the uh, literary integrity of the Hugo Awards, as they saw, was being uh, subordinated to this agenda of trying to get more people represented. So they put mm-hmm. forth a slate of their own candidates, and in in each category, and the people that they put forth, uh, it's been wrongly reported that it was all white male candidates that they put out. That's not true, that there was actually some diversity in the people uh, demographically, but they all represented a generally conservative political point of view. I think that's fair to say. And those are the people that they wanted to see recognized in the awards this year. And they were incredibly successful in getting their votes out to the point that the Hugo nominations, almost every category was dominated entirely by the people that were put out by by this group. So when they were announced, everybody looked at that and said, um, yeah, it's a little strange. And, you know, that, that so it became, you know, people realized what had happened, that this mobilized along political lines to do this. And uh, there was a piece in io9, the blog, that pointed out, they made a very good point. They said, what it means is from here on out, the usual in-group politics of these nominations is going to be replaced by complete out and out left versus right politics is that from here on out, it's going to be their one side organizing their slate of candidates versus another person, uh, another group organizing their slate of candidates. And that's how that's going to play out from now on. And that's kind of too bad because that's not what the awards were meant to be about. Yeah, man. I, Mark Bernardin is on this very show and let off. And in fact, he and I jokingly said, remember the good old days when it was only the sportos that the nerd crowd had to be like just dealing with in terms of like being antagonistic or or, you know, just kind of fighting about, oh, you guys like that stuff. That's not cool. And now, as I said, I use the planet of the the fifth Planet of the Apes movie. Uh, Battle for the Planet of the Apes as my uh, mantra. Ape has killed ape. The apes are going after the apes, man. What the hell's going on? It's like I I get it, and I kind of see both sides. And, you know, you're right. I mean, Worldcon, which is the big sci-fi convention where the Hugo Awards, uh, I believe, are are held and everything, that is absolutely an old-school fandom sci-fi crowd. It, it's the more esoteric science fiction crowd, and I don't mean yeah. to generalize, but it is. I mean, it, you're right. I mean, it's it doesn't it's, take it, a genius. You make a head count. It really is. Yeah, no, it's more insular. But but what I'm pointing out is that it's actually worse than this because if it was just yes. a factionalization of fandom, this stuff happens, and sort of people know where other people stand on these things, and there, you know, it takes you know decades to bury the hatchet on some of this stuff sometimes. But that's fine. But what's what's gone on is that. These external sites, a lot of these new media sites that have spun up, whether it's, you know, uh, places like Salon and Vox Media and stuff like that. Or on the right. Or or on the right. On the right. Yes, Breitbart.com. Absolutely, man. These guys make their money by turning everything into a partisan issue because their hope is that the people who read this site, they're just looking for red meat to get them upset and activated and they're looking for it everywhere. I mean, it's bad enough that the, the, the politics is like this, but they're looking for it on the cultural landscape, too. And they're saying, you know, is is Iron Man glorifying, uh, you know, arms trading or, you know, like they'll they'll find sure. some subtext to the, the plots of pop culture stuff and they'll make that into grist for the culture war in in uh, not because they want to make the culture war better or have anything to contribute to it, but they know that people will come and read those kind of stories on their site. Absolutely, man. And, you know, as you say, it, it's uh, it's one thing because 
this is ha- this has slowly been happening for the last few years. I remember the grief Ed Brubaker got on the right for um, one of his Captain America stories when Bucky was Cap and Bucky uh, was uh, going to this area and there was the illusion that these extremists were Tea Party candidates. And, uh, man, I'll tell you, the right erupted about that and how dare they do that and look what they're doing with Captain America. And then um, by the same token, there was uh, the rec- – well, certainly Lady Thor has gotten a lot of uh, Fox News people upset. And I don't mean to point out the the infringes on the right, which is why – it's interesting to see this uh, reaction from – well, I guess it's a counter-reaction because initially, as you say, you know, uh, there was this organized effort of, hey, let's make sure there's a little more diversity and stuff in the Hugo Awards. Fine. So they spring up and now to, to countermand that, this conservative uh, group of fans has kind of cropped up. And yeah, it's like politics is getting into our fun shit, man, and that's not cool to put it in simple terms. No, it's not. And it's part of it is <laughs> – you know, I think that a lot of people that are politically aware have in their peripheral vision where certain creators stand on certain stuff. But I mean, to be honest, it doesn't actually matter. You know, like there, there's the people that I agree with, the people I don't agree with. When I go to the comic store, when I go to the to the movie theater, I want to be entertained. And I, I want to be able to judge those people on how well they tell the story on, um, you know, and if the the I don't like you can have stories that talk about political things and you can talk about them in an intelligent way, but I don't think that it's a good idea to be holding the political beliefs of a creator against them before anything. You got to judge this stuff on its own merits at a certain point. At least that's my, that's my point of view on it. But part of what's going on here is that these external outlets, these media outlets that make their money by dividing people into red and blue and then watching them fight each other, they're looking into our culture, into comics culture and nerd culture, and finding these arguments and loading them up with this freight about, you know, on the right, they're saying, oh, the, the sad puppies have the right idea. They're, they're taking it to these so-called social justice warriors and yes. showing them what's what. And all of these other people are reading that story that don't have anything to do with science fiction, never read a science fiction book in their life. And suddenly they feel invested in this conflict because these sad puppies, or they're part of their tribe. You know, it's like these are the guys, yes. these are guys we can get behind. They're fighting a good fight and we're going to get in on this, too. And it brings a lot of uh, randomly hostile and belligerent people, as I said in the article, into these fights that really don't have a, a stake in the outcome. And that's really not healthy. I mean, that's where you start getting, you know, because these people, uh, you know, fans are not the most uh, uh, civil people on social media in the first place. <laughs> but you get people that have no connection to fan culture and just just are in it to randomly abuse people and that's i think where you get a real escalation of the abuse and bullying and the and the really nasty stuff that's said online comes from having these these primal emotions being activated by this no no question and and further to use not only um the uh subject of the hugo awards as red meat to kind of point things but it's also that kind of fear that they're using political strategies to it just invade this the geek culture and yeah man it's like come on i mean it's it's so weird i wonder and i don't know and i really am curious if sports in any way is facing that same thing i mean there've been a few you know controversies like um 
the and I think it was the Kansas City Chiefs where the one player you know killed killed his girlfriend then killed himself in the parking lot of the stadium and stuff while the general manager was looking. I mean, it just just sad crazy yeah. stuff that happened last year, and that became a red meat issue. You know, I, mean, I, I think that like uh, there was the college football player who came out as gay a few years ago. That, yes, and he didn't get drafted. And I think if he had gotten drafted and the team that drafted him, that would have become one of those kind of issues. Because, I mean, when a player is a criminal or there's criminal acts involved and stuff like that, that's a different story. But it's somebody that's just kind of living their life and it becomes, you know, uh, symbolic of all this other stuff. Like, sure. like well, the one on the right that, that got me was the with the, um, uh, the Spider-Man uh, Morales and the the reaction on the right, oh, my God, they're replacing Spider-Man with the Hispanic. How politically correct can you get? Like, what are, what are things coming to? It's like, have you read a Spider-Man comic in the last 10 years? Who is who right. is who are the people that are making these comments about it and why are they doing it? It's not because they care especially what's going on in Spider-Man or what Marvel is doing. It's because they're trying to score points in some larger cultural war thing. And that's uh that's the unfortunate development. I agree, and I and I sometimes worry that other geek blogs kind of dip into these uh, stories as clickbait. I mean, we're talking about it right now as well. And I, and I uh, appreciate that, that maybe I'm part of the blame, but the reason why I think is it's interesting and it's kind of crazy. And I, and I really am bringing more attention to it as you are with your column as well to say, Hey, you know, let's, let's let common sense prevail. Costas was on Bill Maher recently in the opening interview. And he's like, look, there's stuff on the left and right that yes, will divide us. But there's got to be some list of just common sense things that we can all be like, all right, can we set aside the politics and all agree X and Y? And certainly when it comes down to Spider-Man, can we all just calm down, take a deep breath? Because, yeah. you know, it's, I was talking about it today. In fact, you know Bendis has got to feel great that a portion of fandom when the question of who is Spider-Man going to be was, you know, came up and, and people were like, oh, this is an interesting opportunity. Well, you know, why not Miles Morales? Hey, that's cool. That's fine. Or whatever. Yeah. Or even further, fine. Name him Peter Parker. Where does it say that it has to be a white guy named Peter Parker? I mean, it, it could be Peter Parker's story. But Peter Parker's story, as is the case with anyone who is subject to uh, lower income living, I mean, my grandparents were living in ghettos. They were white people, but they were Greek immigrants living in ghettos and, and making their way as best as they could. They were not part of the haves. They were in the have-nots in the Depression. So, I mean, I, I get that. And I, and, I mean, that's the thing you can't forget is, like, you know, the experience of Peter Parker, and that's the wonderful thing about Spider-Man, and, and also Superman, for that matter, too. A lot of these characters, you could put any race, any color on them, and, and the story still works. And I think it's really cool that the comics companies are trying to make this stuff relevant. They're trying to make it more inclusive, and they are trying to get people to talk about it. Um, the reason, I guess, from my point of view, and I'm, I'm very aware of the point that you made also, is like, are we make, putting too much into it by talking about it? You know, maybe we are... From my perspective, because I wrote this book about how basically my book is about how comics culture went from being a niche sub subcultural market yes. to taking over the entertainment industry in the 21st century. It's a very no unlikely question. thing to have happened. And people say, well, how did this happen? One of my answers, one of the reasons I think it is, is that comics occupies one of the few public spaces left in American life 
where these things are not really that big a deal. All of the things that divide us, whether they're socioeconomic or racial or political or ideological or whatever, once you walk into a comic convention, you check all that stuff at the door. You're there to have fun. You're there to see the people you're there to see. You're there to dress up and buy stuff and meet fellow fans. And you don't want to get into those kind of conversations. And, you know, you want to be able to feel included, you know, if you're not part of the majority culture. And that's, you know, cons are trying to do that. But basically, cons are a public space that you can go into and not have to worry about that. And people want that. And I think when the con comes to town, everybody is kind of relieved that this is a place where you can have that experience and it's not politically charged or loaded particularly. And when you start poisoning the well with this stuff and you start dividing people and taking fan-based issues and turning them into the same kinds of uh, tribal politics that, that divides the country, you're threatening the thing that makes fan culture valuable to fans and lucrative to the, to the companies that are involved in it. So it's, a, so it's actually a threat to the business side as well as to the, uh, you know, to the general ecology of the fan culture. No question. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a thing, again, that we can all agree on and all enjoy. And it's, it's interesting because there is part of me that does like it when a writer steps out or a writer-artist step out and kind of make a political statement. V for Vendetta certainly did that back in the day about the Thatcher administration and what was going on in England in the early 1980s. And a lot of uh, the sentiment in that still applies today. And, and certainly that was a reaction to conservative uh, thoughts. And then, um, you know, uh, the kerfuffle over uh, David Goyer's little story in that Superman anthology where he says, well, I don't know if I'm – Really for the American way, I'm for everybody. I'm for the world. And that that causes a big reaction. Sometimes those are interesting stories. There are moments, though, and I don't think uh, – certainly there's a huge and, – and of course, as in every one of these social justice grievances, there is this huge cry of, oh, my God, can you believe what's happening in X? Click here to find out more. Right. And it's – is it clickbaiting? Is that isn't that the term for blogging and stuff where you have that kind of red meat story where oh I, I certainly want to see what's going on in the Big Bang Theory. Let me let me go over there right now. Um, you know it's I, the the fact that like uh, Lady Thor and it's sad that we haven't come up with a better name for her. Uh, but you know she is out there and nobody seems to make the the comment that you know by the way. Old Thor, the Odin son, I love that, it's so nerdy to call it that, but the Odin son is still very much part of the book and story, much like uh, Falcon taking over as Captain America, Sam Wilson, and Steve Rogers is still very much part of the story. So, you know, it's that kind of subtext and really, like, if you really do give a shit, here's what's really going on, that seems to be you know, not, not part of the story. It's really just the, the single act itself that isn't representative in any way of the entire body of the work. And also they react to a chapter one or chapter two of a much longer story. I know Jason's been on Jason Aaron to talk about Thor and, and the, the plan for this woman Thor is going to last more than six issues. I mean, it's, it's going to be around with us for a while and it's let Jason tell his story. It's okay. And, and, and odds are, I have a feeling Odin's son's going to be Thor again, you know, before the decade is over, if not, you know, certainly by the time. Well, it's it's interesting. We're at Age of Ultron and Lady Thor is up and running. I guess uh, we'll have to see what these uh, these two new uh, events provide in both uh, DC and Marvel. Well, this is how the, this is how comics engage with the media is like they'll shake up their characters. And we all know this. I mean, everybody that's in the in the, the culture 
gets this. A few uh, last year, I was interviewed on NPR about the death of Archie, and uh-huh. they were they were just shocked that you know like killing <laughs> off Archie. Like, do you understand at all how this stuff works? Like, I mean, it, yeah, they're killing off Archie, and it's, you know it was a well done issue and everything, but you're still going to be able to buy Archie comics. Like, life goes on. So, I, you know, I, they were, you know, so, so that conversation is always happening. And these publishers, I think, are, are doing the right thing by trying to get attention for this. Parenthetically, uh, I was at Emerald City Comic Con uh, in Seattle uh, a week or two ago. And my favorite costume, there were great costumes there. But my favorite costume was a guy cross-dressing as Lady Thor. That's awesome. So I, I, That's I, fantastic. I saw, I saw... I saw this character walking across the show floor. I, I thought, wait a minute, that's a dude. Like, that's, wow. Good for him. <laughs> and this is, this is what I'm saying. It's like people that go to these events, they want to go and have fun. And there's no, uh, you know, if that's your thing, man, go do it. And uh, you don't want it to become a uh, battleground, you know, no if, question. if your workplace or your, or your you know, uh, place of worship or, or wherever you go has become polarized by this stuff. At least you want your, your comic convention and your comic store to be sort of a demilitarized zone. Here, here. Absolutely. Well, now, you know, and then on the, on the left, there was the attempt, I think, to do a, a bit of like, hey, it's a family event. Let's watch it. There was a Booth Babes controversy at PAX. Do you know about this? And it, uh, it doesn't surprise me, but I... Okay, well, and if you don't know, and I, I mean, I talked about it on a, a recent episode, but I'll, but I'll fill you in that, yeah, the the PAX organizers and Penny Arcade is behind PAX, mm-hmm. you know, kind of heard people saying, hey, you know, it's a family event. Can we not have booth babes? And it's like, yeah, maybe that's not cool. Little girls, you know, don't need to see that. But meanwhile, it was okay to be a cosplayer and be some of these sexualized, cos, you know, characters and do cosplay. And I'm all for the cosplayers, but by the same token, it's like, all right, now, and here, and I think of myself as someone that uh, is liberal and lets people at least live their lives, and as long as it doesn't interfere with other lives, so be it, but it's like, well, wait a minute, why is it okay if, and I, I unfortunately, I'm not enough of a gamer to, to name a specific character, so somebody from Mortal Kombat, one of the hot girls from Mortal Kombat, she's okay, but if I'm if I'm selling, you know, Gamefly, and, I, and I'm in a, in a sexy outfit. That's not cool. And it's like, all right, that's the slippery slope that f- worries me. And again, I can appreciate the, the best intentions yeah. of that initial thought. Or even better, and it happened at Emerald City, and I heard about this. Um, the, and, and this is part of the story, too. The, the fan fiction panel that uh, – is it Chris Carell? The the movie critic he he does it he used to be on Attack of the Show he was the DVD critic on Attack of the Show is a is a is a blogger and and talks about movies and he would do this for years this fan fiction uh, reenactment where he got permission from people that wrote fan fiction he gets his comedian friends to do table readings or act them out on stage and all of a sudden the fan fiction cont- contingent is like well that's fan fiction shaming. And that's not cool, and you shouldn't be picking on us. And meanwhile, he got permission from the people who actually wrote the specific stories. And it's like, again, it's like, oh man, get over yourself. Don't. And I'm sorry, that's that's my opinion. I'll, I'll put my opinion out there and say that's again where I can appreciate the intention behind it to be mindful of that. But it's like, 
come on, man. I mean, if if I wanted to do the John Sutras version of Star Wars, I'm sure it would be hokey as hell, and I'd have a lot. And I've had my my. If I were to end Star Trek Voyager, I'd end it this way. And that's a great bar conversation that would probably make for some very silly fan fiction looking stuff. Right. And I and I and I admit it, and that's cool. Uh, well, but this again, is- if the if the if the author's cool with it, and everyone's just you know having a good time, relax. Well, I mean, this is what we were talking about at the top of the show is that, that you know, you, you're deep into this stuff. You have an informed opinion about it. And even if it's not the same as my opinion or whatever, we can argue about that inside the sure. fan culture. And there's people that think it's that it's, it's shaming the fan critics. Let them have that, con- you know, like I, I'm not saying that should be out of bounds. What I don't want, what, what discourages me, I guess, is that if let's say that conversation is is going on, and then there's people outside of the entire Pat. culture who are taking sides oh. on it on the basis of well, the people who are saying that that they're shaming fan fiction must be one of us because they you know like <laughs> because they hold these other political views, and so it's like it's a left right thing, yeah, yeah, and it it becomes a proxy for another argument that really has nothing to do with it. You want to discuss whether it's appropriate to read fan fiction at conventions. Like fans are totally qualified to have that argument, hammer and tongs, and like let's go at it. But I just don't want random people outside of it that don't really know very much or why it's good or why the people that like it like it, you know, to be chiming in with with uh, opinions just on the basis of what they may have read in a in a clickbait article saying, you know, oh, oh look at the nerds fighting, isn't this isn't this outrageous? No, I understand, and I can appreciate that distinction. And you're right, and and, and yeah, that is less of a political <laughs> thing and more of just. Um, but again, but again, that's it does concern me, and I guess that's why with the Hugo Award thing too, that it's this like um, that they're you know beyond using the political tactics too of the left and right as far as labeling things as well. This is a left argument. This is a right argument. The level of fan organization and almost using kind of. Uh, political tactics, and I guess that's well. We have I don't know. we have this really negative example of GamerGate out there, which is something where you know, again, it's like the the within the gaming community, you know, in a very narrow way, the the, the people that were trying to make this point, you know, yes. uh, uh, I personally don't agree with anything that they were saying. I don't, not even at the level of the premise of it. But okay, if they wanted to take issue with it inside of that, but then it becomes this very organized campaign and you start attracting these really you know unstable people that are making threats and trying to silence these women and it quickly becomes an excuse to vent misogyny and everything whatever their original intentions Agreed. were that's what it became and it completely you know fouled the nest for for game fandom like everybody in that fandom has to deal with that now and it's it's ugly and it's unpleasant and it drives a lot of people away and it gives the whole thing a bad name. And I would hate for that to come to science fiction fandom or comics fandom or anything like that to the extent that we can prevent just organized mayhem from, you know, infiltrating. That would be a good thing. You know, uh, Frank Miller gave the keynote speech to the Harvey awards. And I think it was in the early two thousands and there is videotape of it out there. And he, he just made the whole point of, like, you know, for the longest time, because comics were this outlaw medium that the creators and really, I guess, uh, to, to label it the crumbs and the Art Spiegelmans and guys like that. Let us do our thing. Don't look at what we're doing. Just let us be. Let's let us have our fun. And, and it really did translate too in, into the superhero realms as well. And then all of a sudden, 
the big Hollywood blockbusters come and Walking Dead certainly cashes in and uh, some of these other original ideas alongside of DC and Marvel. And now it's like, oh, shit, here's the spotlight. Now they are interested. And as you say, yeah, it, it just it opens the field for these these uh, vipers to, <laughs> to to invade the nest and and really, you know, kind of piss in the pool. And yeah, no, I, I, I'm with you, man. I, I hope that at the very least it it gives some people the chance to kind of step back. I do think, and I wonder if you think this as well, we were speaking off the air about some of the other recent kind of social justice outrages, uh, the Frank Cho, uh, Spider-Gwen cover. I, I, I see it. I, I see the, as much as people want to say, oh my God, look at this. And it may actually work from a clickbaiting standpoint. I, I am, I, I don't know. I, I, it seems to me that uh, more reasonable people are kind of, you know, at least not taking the bait as they did on some of these earlier infractions. I, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think that if people try and manufacture this stuff, it's going to look contrived. And, and, and I mean, that's our, that's our hope is that people will sure. burn out because it'll feel like this isn't an organic controversy anymore. It's something that's been engineered to, to create attention and it's just an attractive nuisance. So the hell with it. And that, that would be good if people got bored with what's going on, and got back to it. And the people that actually do care and have a stake in that conversation and really feel strongly that, you know, I don't think you should be representing, you know, making these kind of representations, even as a joke, even as a thing, that's a point of view. All right, fine. You know, you want to have, let the people that really care about it, make the argument. I don't want to hatch any ideas before their time, but I'm wondering what is on your mind and what you are looking at other fact, you know, factions of fandom and stuff. Obviously, from a convention standpoint, and this is something that you've already put out there, that you know, conventions continue to rise in uh, attendance, and therefore more money is made at these things. Um, it, you know, is you know, you've been to a few shows already this year. You were at you were at uh, Emerald City. Is Emerald City the only show you've been at so far this year? Yeah, I was in Emerald City. Um, I was gonna I was gonna come see you guys out in Chicago, but I'm uh, not not coming there anymore. But I will. I am gonna go to um, Denver and then, uh, of course, uh, San, Diego. San Diego. And actually, I was uh, this topic that we're talking about is something that I'm hoping to talk about on a panel. Um, at one or more of these shows and you're indicating to me that maybe there's a good conversation to be had here. So this is, this is good. No, one of the things I'm looking at in the convention space, I don't know if you saw the news earlier this week that Megacon down in Orlando um, had been acquired. By a large yes. Company. Um, Emerald city, uh, which was a very successful independent show was acquired by Repop. That's correct. Um, and I think a lot of this consolidation earlier this year, I got a call from a, um, an investment bank that was doing some due diligence. Um, and, like I came on their radar as a, as an expert in this space. And they were asking me about, you know, like what's the size of the market and all of this other, other stuff. And it, I mean, the people that were interested in this are, were um, not the kind of people that you would think would be big fans. Uh, these guys were fans of money and, <laughs> and, they could, and they could smell the money that was going on here. And they're like, how big exactly is this? And who are the big players? And, Things like that. When those sorts of people start asking questions and and that kind of money starts coming into it, you know, we're really in a different phase of the, the business right now. It's uh, um, starting to get more consolidated. Um, the independent shows are going to have to compete against you know well organized competition that is that has um, economies of scale working for them. Uh, you know, fans are going to have to decide. I was reading a piece. Uh, um, 
So Indianapolis uh, has like something like nine or 10 major fan cons this year. Mm-hmm. A great city, but I mean, wow. how, how, how many fans and how much money is there that can support that many shows? Seattle has nine or 10 shows ranging from wow. uh, um, Emerald City to PAX to uh, uh, Sakura Khan. You know, I mean, it's, it's hitting different niches of fandom, but there's a lot of stuff out there. And um, it's starting to feel a little like a overheated yeah. market. It's the Marx Brothers stateroom, you know, in Night at the Opera, man, where it's the tiny little stateroom. People keep piling in. And, yeah, I, I don't I don't know. I, you know, it's funny. I can, I guess, think of at first I'm like, well, Chicago only has two. And then I'm like, no, wait a minute. They've got Anime Central and they've got a second anime convention, and I forget what it's called. So that's four. Cake is like the alternative press kind of uh, like uh, – you know, Mocha in New York or uh, an ape in, in San Francisco and stuff. Cake is our little indie mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, we do have a pulp show, but that is kind of more along the lines of the of the sci-fi uh, old school kind of crowd. Yep. Um, so, yeah, that's that's six or seven right there. Um, man, no, you're right. And that's what worries me because two things. One, there's that 90s. And in fact, it still exists. The one like convention model that I always think is, I mean, if you got the money, congratulations and go for it. But I really hate those ones where you've got to drop like 500 bucks to walk in the door. And then you have like big intimate moments with like the crew of Stargate or Buffy and Angel conventions. And it's like, hey, you spend the weekend. They're very limited seating. It's you're you're definitely going to get your autographed picture with them. And it's really nice. But it's like okay, can I just like we have in comics for the most part, have a convention where I pay my money for the ticket at the door. I get a lot of free entertainment. And then if I want to upscale and I want to, you know, go to some of these luxury kind of items, great. The option is there, but I I also don't want to feel denied the opportunity of seeing some of these people, even if it's from a distance at a panel or whatever. And I, and I worry about as these, new conventions pop up. And the other thing, as you say, just the sheer amount, because you went to Seattle, the next week was WonderCon. Yep. This weekend was both MegaCon and the East Coast. Uh, I forget there what was it was called. The East Coast Con East- was the mainstream, and then there was Mocha, which was the alternative show. And, and, it, and there you go. Yeah, and Mocha as well. So three shows. So, so was MegaCon this weekend? MegaCon well? was this weekend. I think there was another one. Um, uh, anyway, but I mean, on any given weekend, there's going to be two or three shows uh, there's going to be, you know, I mean, I, I, I wonder how the artists can make it to all these places. And, yeah. Um, but you know, that's the thing is that right now, and, and for as long as we've been involved in this stuff, comic cons are affordable family entertainment. And, you know, it used to be like going to a football game was affordable family entertainment too. And no more because a lot of yeah. money has come into that and it's become all about like the super boxes and the luxury experiences yeah. And right. yeah, you can sit in the bleachers, um, maybe not in Wrigley, but in the, you know, <laughs> everywhere else, uh, you know, and, and, and have that experience. But then, you know, it's like you, the more you pay, the better deal you get. And comic cons, as you say, you pay your money and you can go in and you can you can go face to face with the creators. You can go into the panels and see the people you want to see. And now it's starting to segment out and you get these VIP gold and platinum passes that get you to the front of the line. And you know, it's capitalism in action, and that's fine. Um, but, you know, we recently had Hotel Halloween with uh, San Diego Comic-Con. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Right. The whole internet goes a little bit dark. It's like everybody turns on their <laughs> their uh, dryers at once or something, and then all the power gets sucked out for a second. It's like a brownout. Yeah, absolutely. Go yeah, on. a little bit of a brownout on the internet while while the while that sorted itself out, and people complain about that, and that process is is really kind of rickety and everything. On the other hand, it's fundamentally small d democratic. I mean that if you get in there, you have a fighting chance with everybody else to get a, to get a pass to get a room, and when you get to San Diego. And you want to, if there's a panel you want to see, get in line and they'll let you in and you're paying with your time and there's no, they don't have, you know, gold tier passes and that sort of thing because they're a nonprofit and they, they're, they don't need to make the last dollar. And part of the reason they, you know, they made a very deliberate, I think, uh, decision that given that they have limitations of space, they could charge double and that would take care of a lot of their overcrowding. It's already pretty, you know, it's 200 bucks for the full weekend, I think. Yeah. But when you think about what Disneyland costs or something like that, I mean, it's still a pretty good deal. But, you know, they could price those tickets at $1,000 and they probably still sell out. But it's kind of nice that they are not doing that. But somebody will do that. So, I mean, somebody's going to have, oh, yeah. somebody's going to have some kind of very high-end VIP Comic-Con experience or something like that. And, you know, uh Maybe I'm maybe I'm just like old fashioned and unrealistically nostalgic, but I'm afraid that when you start creating those kind of segmented experiences, you're again, um, it's the beginning of the end of what of what makes the yeah. culture attractive in the first place. No, I agree, man. No, it's less of a grassroots thing and more of a an, a reachable. Uh, appreciation of the art where you can go up to the creator and, and say, hey, man, you're great in a way that you can't with your favorite rock bands necessarily or, you know, certainly movie stars and everything. I mean, it, it yeah, it's it's a lot tougher. And also, do you remember in the 90s? Too, well, like I said, those cre- like those creation kind of uh, conventions and stuff. If I'm not mistaken, I mean, obviously, and maybe part of it had to do, too, with the economic downturn that happened in 2001, but it did seem like things did soften after things reached kind of a critical mass from a convention, from a pure sci-fi convention standpoint in the 90s. And yeah, I, I, you know, again, I, I would hate to see that capitalism and greed kind of does ruin this great thing. And I don't know if there's any trends that you're aware of. Am I right in categorizing it that way back in the nineties and early two thousands? Yeah. I mean, this is a business that's been through a bunch of booms and busts and there's been casualties and disruptions that happened. And you would think that with all the, that everything has gone through, um, you know, in the last 20, 25, 30 years, this within the living memory, the people that are running the business right now, they would have this in their head about like, they can smell the next one coming and maybe they do smell it and they don't care. Or maybe the market is bigger and it's more robust and it's going to be different this time. It's hard. You know, when I wrote the comic con and the business of pop culture book in 2011 and 2012, it's it's three years since the book came out. And that's, I thought at that moment, that was peak geek. That was the top of the, that was the top of the hill. And part of, you know, my, my craft of, uh, you know, doing business planning and business forecasting is you don't just follow the trend line indefinitely in the direction it's going. You think to yourself, what happens if the unexpected happens and you know you sort of fall off the curve? And so I had a couple of scenarios in that book where I was talking about like uh, what happens if the industry shrinks and what if it's a more, right. more a more creative driven industry or what if we go back to where we were in you know in the in the uh, mid '90s where it was all very uh, fan oriented and there wasn't a whole lot of uh, interest in getting outside people into it. Um, 
And somebody pointed out to me that they, they had read my book and they said, it's like you didn't need to do the four scenarios because all that stuff is happening at once. Exactly. I mean, you're getting these, you know, both of the big two are doing these super intense fan oriented continuity events right now where they're trying to sell you every issue of every title just so you can figure out what the story is about, which is the opposite of fan friendly. And at the same time, you've got, you know, IDW and Image and, and Dark Horse and all of these people pushing the creative envelope and bringing, you know, all kinds of great new stories and, you know, great graphic novels and all of that stuff. So a huge amount of uh, creative potential is happening. Um, the movies are still going great guns and there's still huge expansion in in digital and international. So all four quadrants that I had put out there, there's evidence to show that we're that it, you know you could say well we're, we're going in all four of these different directions at once and that's that's actually kind of cool i mean it's uh it, it, if i if i was going to be wrong about it that's the way i wanted to be wrong it's like all of the good stuff in each scenario <laughs> is all happening and not and we're not seeing a whole lot of the bad stuff and that's no that's no good. absolutely and no question i was talking about it uh with tim seeley the co-creator of revival for image and uh you know is writing one of the batman was writing uh, batman eternal and is doing Grayson right now for DC and stuff. And so he's got his feet in both the main, you know, the big two, and then also doing his own thing. And the economics are clearly there that there is room for more than just Ed Brubaker and Brian K. Vaughn and Robert Kirkman as far as comic creators doing their own thing and being able to self-publish their books either through Image or even through deals with IDW and Dark Horse and the like uh, or even self-publish make enough money that they can sustain these things, have the audience that, that, you know, is there and what they, what the numbers that they need for success are far different from DC and Marvel. The question is, and we don't know yet, or, uh, you know, what indication of what comes after these two big events. I mean, DC, it seems like from the, uh, creator summit, um, they seem to understand that uh, rather than looking at Marvel, it is these other publishers, not just the image guys, but these other guys that they have to really be more concerned about in terms of what kind of product they're putting out there. And it sounds like, certainly given the slate of new books, that they are they are toying with a, a level of creativity that we and, – and also creative freedom from, from the writer and artist standpoint that maybe wasn't there during that post-Flashpoint New 52 period. And Marvel is still up in the air in terms of what Marvel is going to look like afterwards. Would you agree with those questions? Well, that seem yeah, to be- I, I think also that the way that Marvel has handled the integration of its media properties in with its comic titles and everything is really very well done and it's very strategic and they're first. And, and because Marvel is doing it, now we know what it looks like when it's done right. DC is doing it the jury's out on whether they're doing it right. Cause we haven't seen any of the new movies yet. We haven't, you know, right. we know what their roadmap looks like. We know what their TV series look like. You know, we can kind of see how the books and the video games, you know, like some of this stuff is, you know, is, is trying to fit together, but there's a, um, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's actually a qualitative difference about, you know, how you manage these properties and how you manage your, your media portfolio. And if you, if they don't do it right, then it actually doesn't matter what's going to go on in the comic books because people aren't going to be as invested in their stuff anymore. So understood, you know, like there's, so they have a lot riding on how well they um, do this stuff. Marvel has answered that question. We we know they do it well. And the people that like the Marvel 
universe stuff come in and they read the comics and they get it and they you know it's like they're they are creating new readers out of that um to the extent that they even care about doing that but i think they are doing it is dc doing it you know are are people watching arrow and flash and then going and reading the books you know i i'd I'd be interested to know that no i agree and i do think you know they've got those couple products it seems like you know like uh arrow and flash and and uh even season 11 of smallville or if they're on season 12 now i forget but um so there's attempts certainly the batman 66 thing is a great idea from a comic book standpoint and you know again maybe response to an older culture but i think young people really like it too and so there's that flexibility you got to hand it to dc from a television standpoint i mean my god what a great year as we're coming to the close of the current television season even the question of whether constantine will come back or not is you know granted part of the equation but my god arrow gotham in the flesh you gotta be like you know they've got to be thrilled and certainly of of what's coming up i had mark guggenheim on and right before the announcement that you know when when people knew and certainly introducing the atom and uh some of these other characters that they've introduced on both flash and arrow firestorm you know it was inevitable that that, you know something was going to happen with these guys uh and women uh i don't know it's it's and also vixen i mean i haven't watched the digital uh cartoons of vixen yet well see this is this is the issue to me is that uh even if you've got enough money to 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 buy all this stuff and you know like there's so much stuff there's so much stuff out there that looks interesting to me where do people find the time for this i mean it's like i can follow two or three of the shows i can follow you know uh four or five monthly titles and you know graphic novel and stuff like that i'm like this is my job kind of to to stay on top of this stuff and it's yeah. very um it, it's hard work where you know to me the, the the limit here is not necessarily the money it's attention it's you know how how sure. much of this stuff can people actually realistically pay attention to and invest their emotional energy and their fandom in um when there's so many cool things all competing for your time much like house of cards taking a year i'm sorry i didn't mean to cut you off <laughs> no, keep going i'm done cuz okay cuz yeah i'm curious it it obviously took like about a year after House of Cards to come out for the word of mouth to really reach everyone. And suddenly, like, half P- and same with Orange is the New Black, a lot, Alpha House on uh, Amazon Prime. And that's why, as we're speaking, this is the weekend that Daredevil premiered on Netflix. Uh, Powers is up to seven episodes now on, on Sony PlayStation. And, you know, you really won't be able to tell, it seems to me, until maybe a year from now, as far as these non-cable uh, or network TV options, the streaming TV options that are you know playing with comic book materials and stuff like that. It's going to be a longer gestation pro- process to see what kind of audience gathers for these things. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm the audience. I'm dying to see Daredevil. I don't know when I'm going to find you know nine or ten hours <laughs> to pack in all those episodes. It's just like I'd like to do it, but it's just intimidating to me right now. It's like I'm behind on. You know, I'm two or three behind on Gotham and I got to check out iZombie and, you know, all this other stuff. iZombie, absolutely. Man. Right. And, yeah. uh, you know, and it's all good. It all sounds great. But, you know, like um, it's too much of a good thing almost. And that's um, that's why it's again, it's like I don't mean to be the naysayer here. I think that, all, that it's great that there's enough money and there's enough uh, new fans coming in to support all of these different properties. But, it, boy, it really looks awfully crowded in here right now understood and no it's 
it's what we always wanted is finally happening. I mean, you know, we were little kids and have to watch those crappy Marvel movies from the 70s. Red Brown is Captain America and, right. you know, and the like and everything. And it's like, oh, man, like now we got to wait another couple of years for another one. OK. And now here we are. Where, as we say, there's too much to consume. You know, be careful what you wish for. But, yeah, it's going to it is. It's going to be an interesting time to see what next season looks like for the shows that have kind of gotten their footing this year and and how this expands and the same with the with the streaming market as well it's it's a brand new market and uh luckily there's a culture of you know 20 somethings and younger that don't go to traditional tv and are very happy to watch stuff online and on their tablets and on their phones and everything so uh it's yeah i, I don't know it's it's counting those numbers and also the availability of those numbers i think is going to be an interesting thing to watch because we know how tight uh, Amazon is with numbers and things like, and certainly Netflix as well. Yes. You know, they 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 almost work more on word of mouth than they do on an actual, uh, you know, hard numbers being crunched or anything like that. I mean, am I right? Is there any data out there for House of Cards or I think Orange if, is the New I, Black? If you want to advertise with them, you probably can get pretty good numbers. But for the most part, uh, I haven't seen a whole lot. Um, there was a brief moment of transparency in the comics market when Comixology was out there and they were putting out numbers in their effort to get sold. And then they got mm-hmm. bought by Amazon. And now, you know, it's like we have estimates, but we, uh, you know, some of this stuff isn't as, as, uh, as, as it was even, even a year or two ago. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, yeah, it's interesting to see. Very cool, man. Well, there's more to, uh, to look at and, uh, I look forward to finding out, uh, what kind of programming you're involved with uh, come San Diego time. But uh, like I said, this Hugo Awards thing I think was really interesting and it gave me an excuse to uh, have you back and find out what's going on. So yeah, maybe uh, as things firm up for San Diego, we might be able to preview what's going on over there if uh, if if you need the uh, promotion. You're always welcome. And yeah, anytime anytime you got an interesting story like this, Rob, I mean, like I said, when I saw the Hugo Award thing, I, I was like, this is crazy. Yes. I really am interested in what this is, you know, what's going on. And it, it gives me an excuse to talk to you about the bigger picture as well. So well, happy to have you back and uh, looking forward to our next conversation. Sure. It's always a pleasure. And uh, your listeners, if, you're, if they're interested, can follow me at Rob Salk on Twitter. Um, I'm every other uh, Monday or Tuesday, I guess it comes out, uh, on ICV2.com is, is my column. And uh, I think I can say for the first time here, uh, I'm working on a, a revised edition of the Comic-Con and Business of Pop Culture book. And we're uh, just going to start the conversations about how to, uh, how to roll that out and get a, uh, get a new printing out. That's excellent, and I meant to ask you that as you were saying that how things have obviously changed so drastically in these three or four years. So, uh, yeah, man. The story no, continues. Good chat with Rob Salkowitz. Good chat with Mark Bernardin. I hope you enjoyed both chats today on Word Balloon. I'm happy you came along with us. Again, if you like what you're hearing, make sure you tell a friend about Word Balloon. It's all brought to you today by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com, where amazing deals are happening. Don't forget, if your orders are $50 or more, you'll receive free shipping. You get up to 40% off comics uh, from uh, Discount Comic Book Service, their monthly subscription thing, but then 42% off at InStockTrades.com if you're just looking to buy some trades or hardcovers or absolute editions or omnibus editions, essentials. Things like Miracle Man, the premium hardcover, uh, book three, is uh, 42% off. It's just $23.19. You can get Avengers or New Avengers. So Hell, why not buy both? From uh, Jonathan Hickman. The Avengers hardcover is 50% off 
Volume 1. It's just $17.49. You can get the uh, hardcover of New Avengers Volume 1 at 42% off, just $20.29. That's at InStockTrades.com. You can also get great books like Jupiter's Legacy from Mark Miller and Frank Quitely. 50% off, it's just $4.99. From uh, Jimmy Palmiotti, Amanda Connor, and Friends, Harley Quinn, Volume 2, Power Outage, 42% off, $14.49. And all of this is available to you, plus a lot more, at InStockTrades.com. I defy you not to find a book that you want at InStockTrades and uh, find it at a great price, too. Check it out for yourself, InStockTrades.com. John Sutcher saying thanks again for listening to Word Balloon. A couple show notes. Don't forget, C2E2 is coming up uh, in about a week. And uh, very excited. I'll be doing the Gene Ha panel. That's why Gene was on the last episode. And uh, really looking forward to that, talking to him uh, about uh, some, a very neat project that he has going on. If you're in the Chicago area, please come by. Uh, there's also going to be a pre-C2E2 party at uh, Oya Comics in Skokie. Uh, my friends Art Franco and Mark are uh, putting on an excellent shindig, and it's a great opportunity to meet some creators and hang out. So uh, Suburban Skokie, uh, IAC Comics, if you go to IACComics.com, I imagine you'll find all the information over there the night before C2E2. And then it's going to be uh, nothing but mayhem, underwear on our heads, running around like idiots. Uh, C2E2, the 24th through the 26th downtown at McCormick Place in downtown Chicago. Really looking forward to it. Very excited to be there. Uh, I will be wandering the aisles uh, looking for friends and uh, doing some interviews. So if you see me, don't interrupt an interview, but by all means, uh, you know, if you see me walking around or even after, you know, hang out till the interview is done and you want to say hello, excellent, man. Let me uh, give me the opportunity to thank you for listening to Word Balloon and knowing what the hell I do and who I am. That's awesome. So uh, keep listening though. Great music. Great music. Keep listening, though. Great programming coming up throughout the month of April on to May and the summer. It's going to be an awesome summer. We are closing in on our 10th anniversary, May 10th, 2015. It'll be 10 years. Five million downloads. Insane. I have you to thank for it. Thank you for uh, sticking with me. If you've been here since the beginning, wow. Think of all the time you've wasted uh, listening to my nonsense. No, no, no. It's good stuff, man. Lots of great creators coming on, talking about their stuff. Happy to uh, host it and uh, provide me and you with interesting conversations. I like being a part of it, and I like you guys being flies on the wall and women uh, enjoying what these wonderful uh, creative people have to say. So until next time, thank you. Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions. Copyright 2015.